Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Well, we've had such a good week. I mean, it has just been incredible around here. The guests we've had, uh, Jason Shepard, um, was just amazing when he was on. It was on Tuesday or Wednesday. He was on Tuesday. Uh, yesterday, we were jam-packed. We had uh, four reporters, so we were wall-to-wall reporters. Uh, never got a break. Sailed to the show. Three hours went by like nothing. Uh, it was just fabulous. Today is the total opposite. Today... <laughs> You know, uh, CJ's out, so I have absolutely three hours with. Uh, I had three hours with nothing uh, planned, which is unusual. There's always something planned. There's always some report. There's always things. Tomorrow we got Mike Clinch coming back. We're going to do a, a, a Mr. Science Hour, and so that's kind of cool. But uh, this is that's like the end of the summer. You know, we, we just uh, we're coming up to Labor Day. Um, that is going to be Monday. And Labor Day was last week. Wait, when was my thing schedule here? So my calendar. Okay, so Labor Day was Monday. All right, so this Monday is actually 9/11. And so we're going to do my 9-11. I have to talk to Jonathan about this, too. Um, I think he'll want to get in on it. it is, uh, is a special show we're going to do on the Patriot Act. And so as everybody's going to focus on what they always focus on, the pictures, the video, sensationalism. Um, and what we used to focus on was, you know, the things that weren't answered, like why did Building 7 of the World Trade Center blow up when it wasn't hit by an airplane? You know, how come there's no airplane wreckage at the Pentagon? <laughs> you know, little things like that. How come it looks more like demolition charges? You know, how does a building, you know, collapse from, from an airplane when airplanes have crashed into buildings before uh, with, with the negligible effect, like the, the B-25? Um, which is a big twin-engine bomber from World War II that uh, flew right into the uh, Empire State Building. <laughs> did, did it explode? No. <laughs> did it cause massive damage? Uh, well, it caused damage, but did it bring the building down? No. Um, and that's a lot narrower. Small, you know, it's still a big building, but uh, you know, this, the thing uh, in a 767 is a much bigger jet. But the idea that a jet could bring down a building is, uh, has always been kind of absurd to me. Uh, do I believe the, the hijackers are real and the people died? Absolutely. Um, 3,000 people died, but the, the question is why? That's the big question. But uh, the Patriot Act is what resulted from all this. And so you have to ask the question, you know, did the government do this intentionally? I don't think so. Did they capitalize on, on the opportunity once they found out that it was going to be destroyed? Uh, yes, that's, that's more likely. I don't think the government's brave enough or coordinated enough to actually, you know, do this from nothing because they'd be so paranoid they'd be discovered. However, if they know it's going to happen anyway, then they got to kind of cover because they can always blame the people that did it, although they keep blaming the wrong people. I mean, there were Saudis who flew the airplanes into the towers in 9-11, but uh, it wasn't a Saudi operation. It was an Iranian operation. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and I got that from Claire Lopez, who was on the show um, many, many weeks, uh, and she's CIA. You know, she's CIA field officer. She knows stuff. And so uh, she's a Middle East expert, and I do mean expert. And when she says that Iran is behind, uh, was behind 9-11, I believe her. And so because of that, the idea that Obama, who's, you know, Muslim Marxist, apparently the Muslim Marxists have a lot in common, you know, whether you're a, uh, uh, what do they call it, theocracy or a a dictatorship, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of the same thing that, uh, you know, the, the, it's it's still an authoritarian government, whether it's based on religion or based on uh, communism. And so that's why they get along so well, because, you know, they're used to completely ruling their people. And so the idea that uh, anybody in government who has in a position to do something about it, you know, let Barack Obama give Iran nuclear technology uh, is insane. 
and so that would be the State Department, most of whom should be fired or arrested or both. Um, that would be the Congress for, for letting them have the money. That was stupid. Why they, why they let Brandon have any money within a legal administration is beyond my comprehension, too. The first thing the, government, the, first thing the, the House should have done, you know, day one, January 20th, you know, 2023, when they when they uh, assumed control of the White House, of, of, of the uh, the House of Representatives, was shut down the government. I mean, literally shut it down, defund everything. Brandon, you know, you keep Social Security, you keep uh, the defense, you keep things on like that, and we don't want to lose the country. But as far as anything in the in the Brandon insurrection, every single department, the White House, the budget, Air Force One, all of that should have been cut to zero. That's what I would have done if I was Speaker of the House. Of course, they didn't make me speaker, so I couldn't do it. They made Kevin McDeep State Speaker, a deep state operative in the in the uh, in the mold of, and I do mean mold, <laughs> in the mold of Paul Ryan, um, what's your name, Cheney, Liz Cheney, all those folks. It's, it's all the same party, right? It's all the same group. It's, it's the uh, it's the unit party. It's the deep state party. It's the controlled government. You know, it's the you know it's their own separate little uh, country. And so we're going to focus on the Patriot Act and the the security state that arose from it. You know, just as I am convinced that Franklin Roosevelt knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. I mean, they had him on radar. <laughs> you know, they said, well, this lieutenant said, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, really? <laughs> you know, they're, they're all trained in radar. You know, they see massive blips coming in from the, the northeast, which is an area that uh, B-17s wouldn't fly in from coming from California. They would have come in from the west. You know, I mean, that, that doesn't matter. Why would the B-17s fly all around in the northeast and then come in that way? That doesn't make sense. So the idea that they totally dismissed this, no, that's just too easy. So FDR knew. They, you know, I mean, that, that's what the cause. But we, we have a long tradition of causing wars. Um, you know, remember the Maine, the, the Maine battleship, the, you know, the battleship, the Maine that was sunk in Havana Harbor that started the Spanish-American War. Why? Because we wanted the Spanish-American War. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave, you know, Lyndon Johnson unlimited power to wage a, a stupid, wasteful, and dangerous war in uh, Vietnam that we're still, you know, recovering from psychologically. Great idea. Gulf of, Con- Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, the baby, the incubators you know, in Iraq. We've got to, we've got to uh, you know, invade Iraq. They're, they're, throwing, they're taking babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor. That was the big lie was, you know, by somebody who was an Iranian government operative. Um, and so this, goes, uh, um, this just goes on and on and on. And I forgot what the Af- – Afghanistan was 9-11, even though uh, Afgan- Afghanistan wasn't really involved in 9-11 as far as I know. Well, they might be harboring terrorists. Well, I mean, these folks can live anywhere, <laughs> you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan. I mean, more likely Pakistan. We didn't invade Pakistan because we would give them billions of dollars in aid, you know. But so wherever they are, it's not the country. That's like, uh, you know, at least Trump had the right idea, you know, when he um, went after Soleimani and al-Baghdadi. He didn't destroy the countries they were living in. He just, you know, killed them. Much easier, much simpler, much more straightforward. And it really sends a message. We, you know, we didn't have much, many problems you know, after Trump did that. So you kill one person in a special operation as opposed to waging a war for, for 20 years where getting a whole bunch of Americans killed. What would you rather do? Pretty simple, huh? That's why they don't want Trump back because Trump's bad for business. Trump is bad for the military, industrial, you know, government complex business. That's what it's all about. They're not going to make money under Trump. They're not going to wage a stupid war in Ukraine. He's going to stop the Ukraine war. Uh, he'll probably pull a lot of troops back from a lot of places, which he should. Get us out of NATO. You know, what are we doing in Okinawa, by the way? Does, does anybody know where Okinawa is on a map? <laughs> you know, um, and the question is, you know, I'm thinking about this too. Should we go to war with China over Taiwan? And my answer would be no. <laughs> you know, oh, that's heartless, Greg. They're an ally. We have a treaty. Yeah, okay. So, you know, we got to do something about that. Now, should we uh, aid Taiwan in their fight against uh, China? Absolutely. I would give everybody there an AR-15. 
So everybody over 21 in Taiwan should get an AR-15 and learn how to use it. Do you think China can occupy Taiwan if every adult over 21 has an AR-15? I don't think so. You know, so, but you've got to get creative. I would also give Taiwan nuclear weapons. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, so you give Taiwan nuclear weapons and you give every adult over 21 an AR-15 and the problem is solved. How's China going to occupy it? They're not going to want to occupy a country that can fire nuclear weapons at them. You know, are they going to, are they going to nuke Taiwan? If, if they nuke Taiwan, then they lose Taiwan. So the whole point of Taiwan is to bring it into the Chinese territorial provisional communist government. So if they nuke Taiwan, that, that kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Because then they won't have Taiwan. Nobody will. They'll all be dead. So, but, so, so they're not going to nuke Taiwan. They want to be able to take Taiwan, right? Well, you can't take Taiwan if you've nuked it. But if China has nuclear weapons, if Taiwan has nuclear weapons, then chances are China's going to think twice about nuking Taiwan. A, because if they nuke Taiwan, Taiwan's going to nuke them. Once the missiles are in the air, they're going to fly on both sides. China's going to be destroyed, you know, large portions of it. And that's not going to help China. Uh, and they won't get Taiwan. So, so in, the, in the overall calculus, uh, there'd be no reason to take Taiwan if Taiwan had nuclear weapons. Okay. Well, who else had nuclear weapons? Japan. South Korea, I would give them nuclear, don't give them to Iran. <laughs> you know, you're giving, you're giving nuclear weapons to the worst, you know, country on the planet in terms of terrorism. You know, the country that attacked us at 9-11, you're going to give them nuclear weapons? Well, of course, because they're, they're, you know, Obama's a communist, Muslim, you know, he's a theocracy Marxist. You know, Bill Clinton gave uh, the nukes to uh, North Korea. Oh, they came in the form of power plants and things like that, but they enriched the uranium and made nukes out of them. So Bill Clinton gave nukes to, to North Korea, our, you know, probably the worst enemy in Asia, and Barack Obama gave nukes to uh, Iran, probably the worst enemy in the Middle East. So our, our, our so-called Democrat presidents are giving away, the, giving to the worst nations on the planet the most uh, dangerous weapons on the planet. So that makes sense. You know? So it's a strange world we live in, you know, where we have all these things going on, and, uh, and yet the people that can stop it don't. I mean, the House of Representatives can hold up anything in the budget. The Republicans control the House. Therefore, the Republicans can, can control the spending in Congress simply by denying uh, a vote on it. Oh, geez, great. The government might shut down. We won't meet our obligations. Yes, we will meet our obligations, but you have to cut the obligations. So, so the House would be in a position where they have to cut an amazing amount of spending, which they can easily do, and nobody would notice. You could cut half the federal budget and nobody would notice. They wouldn't. Just, you know, the only things that uh, the, government, the federal government really has to do anyway um, is defense, which is about two-thirds of the federal budget, um, you know, roads and infrastructure, highways, you know, the aviation system, things like that. And that's about another 20%. So now we're at 75, you know, about 95%. And you have about 5% left over for all the necessary offices, the Supreme Court, Library of Congress, the Patent Office, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, things that are outlined, Department of Commerce, things that are actually outlined in the Constitution. Well, that costs about a trillion and a half dollars. So the government takes in five trillion. They need to spend a trillion and a half on essential constitutional items. That leaves a $3.5 trillion surplus, which could be used to pay off the national debt every year. So in fact, we could actually do it faster. So if you uh, take away the, the power of Congress to borrow money, which is in our constitutional amendment, and um, you said they can't spend more than 1.5 trillion on the whole government, you know, so that'd be uh, all the entitlements that need to be privatized anyway. I mean, we can't afford them. So that, that's going to happen one day. It's just a question of when. Um, then you've got to, then we should be out of the national debt in 10 years. If you don't put the surplus into the national debt, we'll be out of the national debt in 30 years. Either way, we'll be out of the national debt. So, I mean, these problems are easy to solve. The, the solutions are, are very easy to figure out and they're very easy to understand. The, the, thing is, the problem is the willpower. See, the people in, in charge don't want that. They want to be able to spend uh, and borrow trillions of dollars. They, they like the power. They're addicted to it. They're like, uh, they're, they're like gamblers or sex addicts except that their, their addiction is to uh, your money. 
It's not their own money they're addicted to. They're, they're addicted to your money. <laughs> you know, well, they got their own addiction to their own money, but that's kind of how it works. Anyway, so today, because we have three hours with uh, nothing really planned, I thought I'd do something interesting. And I haven't done this before. And so I have two classic uh, interviews from WEBY that I made back in um, uh, 2017. So it's my first year in radio. And it's Mark Thornton. I actually had him for two appearances. And I haven't done this. And I haven't listened to these shows for a long time. I played them probably individually months ago. Um, but uh, I tend to do repeats, you know, I tend to, to work on the holidays and do repeats during the regular weekdays. And so because we're in the calm before the storm, because we're in this period where we're, nothing's really happening in the news until Congress gets back next week after 9-11. So apparently they're back 9-12. So they're back next Tuesday. And my expectations are, are probably as low as they've ever been because of the things that they have not done. The Republican House, I should do a report, I should do a show on what they have not done. They have not started a House Select Committee on the stolen election of 2020. In fact, I actually did. I wrote an article on it. They have not, you know, halted all the Brandon stuff. The, the, somebody, let me pull up right now. Let's go over this real quickly. Substack. Go to gregpenglis.substack.com, and you will find amazing things. So let me go to my Substack and say that, you know, these are the things. I might have gone over this on the show already. So I pledge that the GOP shall not get my vote until, and here's the basic on it. So you're gregpenglis.com. And so I said, if the GOP wants my vote in 2024, not Trump, as I'm voting for him anyway, but the rest of the GOP, uh, if they want my vote, I pledge that the following are required. And I said, please share, take the pledge. And as uh, I should say, ask others to take the pledge. So I'll have to correct that. So the pledge is the first thing, immediately start a House Select Committee hearing on the stolen 2020 election. No Democrats on the committee, just like their January 6th show. So just as the Democrats had a committee without Republicans, the Republicans need to have a committee without Democrats. Fair is fair. Next thing, close the D.C. Gulag prison, release all the January 6th prisoners, de- delete the prison from any future funding. Next, the Republican Party has to pay all of Trump's legal fees and compliance fees, including his airplane and, uh, for court appearances. Payback for helping the Democrats uh, steal the 2020 election. So that's, that's their payback. Now, I just wrote a compliance bill that says that people get their, their defense equity payment. <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it, which is however much the government has spent investigating them. Um, plus, they get, uh, all, get to bill the government for all compliance costs with the investigation. So it doesn't cost them anything uh, until they have, actually have a conviction. So that's how that goes. The next one, stop funding for any department, any agency or person that deals with education, diversity, equity, inclusion, critical race, or any other race theory, green energy, climate change, any restrictions on consumer products such as gas, uh, gas cars, stoves, and light bulbs, aiding illegal aliens, including NGOs, that would be non-governmental organizations, Ukraine, vaccines, guns, the Department of Justice, the White House staff, and any salary for anyone at any policymaking level. So in other words, shut down the branded insurrection, right? This is, um, this is to shut down the illegal government. Next thing ahead, pass legislation to repeal the bogus Supreme Court opinions that involve the creation of policy, regulation, or law. I'm happy to point out a few examples. Yeah, Plyler v. Doe. They've already got Roe v. Wade. Um, the um, various decisions of late. Anything that involves policy, law, or regulation is illegal. The Supreme Court has no power to affect that, so just Congress needs to just repeal those decisions. Hey, <gasps> Greg, it's the Supreme Court. Congress can't do it without a constitutional amendment. That's BS. That's not in the Constitution. That's just an ugly rumor. Uh, fortunately, it is just an ugly rumor because there's no way you'd, you'd be able to get or should get. You know, and, and the idea that five judges on the Supreme Court uh, yeah, I said judges. That's what the Constitution says. Article 3, read it. It says judges, right? So there's no way that uh, it's, uh, there are co-equal branches. If one branch can, can take a, a vote of five and have the same impact as two-thirds of the Congress and three-quarters of the states, that's irrational. 
And yet that's what people think. Oh, well. What else have I got here? Pass legislation that uh, no regulation becomes law without a vote of Congress. Also, outlaw any continuing resolutions and pass legislation to revoke the power of Congress to borrow money. I actually have that as a constitutional amendment. Uh, and state Republican attorney generals have to start indicting Democrats. Yes, yeah, time to arrest Democrats. It doesn't matter the charges. Start arresting Democrats. That's what they do. They arrest uh, Trump and Republicans. For what reason? Well, they want to keep them out of the election. Okay, fine. So arrest Democrats. I would arrest Democrats for the Civil War. Because they've never been properly prosecuted. Oh, gee, Greg, where does that come from? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been thinking about this for a little bit. And so uh, if you – and I'm going to get my Facebook post. So I'll bring that up right here. Oh, I'm start li- I should start live chat. Uh, I've got to log into live chat. Since, uh, like I say, Marco hasn't been here for a while, so I haven't uh, – uh, I've been doing it every day, but I started the show. I almost started the show late. I, you know, I logged in 25 seconds before the show started. Probably shouldn't admit that. So I just put your turn, your turn. Exclamation point. What's on your mind? What's on your mind? There we go. Oh, I put what's without a, <laughs> without a, without a apostrophe. That's okay. We'll get over it. So. I wrote something on Facebook. I said uh, the only real insurrection was the Democrat Confederacy. The 14th Amendment says they can't hold office. Should have banned them in 1864. We'd be a free country. So unfortunately, I can't really expand on my thoughts on Facebook because I have those little memes. Those memes only have so many words. It's kind of like a Twitter post, although Twitter seems to be bigger now, even though it's X. (laughs) Oh, I have a new new, uh, Twitter account. Um, It's like slash... uh, uh, what is it? Slash slash something. Slash action radio. I think it's slash uh, action radio citizen legislature. Just go to Twitter and put in action radio citizen legislature. You'll find me. Shouldn't be hard. I'm the dude with the cowboy hat. Um, so anyway, kind of squished down my face a little bit. I look kind of round, <laughs> you know, but that's how they do it. All right. So here's the thing. So what the, the current bogus argument coming out of the, uh, the Marxist Democrats is that the 14th Amendment says that anybody who uh, participates in a rebellion or insurrection to overthrow the government can't hold office. All right? Well, that was meant for the Democrats after the Civil War. So I thought, well, wait a minute. Let's, uh, let's see if that still holds true today. You know, and the, Republican, the Democrats are saying, well, because it says that you know, uh, in the 14th Amendment that Trump can't hold office because he led an insurrection. Of course, that's BS. We know he didn't lead an insurrection. Let's, let's look at this. Article 3. Uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says, no person shall be a senator or representative in the Congress or elector to a president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. See, there's a difference between the United States, that's the federal government, you know, or any state, which is a state government. They're, They're completely independent of each other, right? Except that the United States is under the states because the states ratified the Constitution, giving the United States... Uh, or the federal government, the, uh, the, the power to do what the states told them they could do. All right, and it says, who, and then it says, here's the key part, who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature da, 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 to support the Constitution of the United States and then shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Okay, now the people that were in January 6th, they weren't even protesters. They were actually supporters. They were supporting the constitutional procedure to count the electors by challenge. So what they were doing was constitutional. They, you know, everybody said, well, they weren't writers. They were protesters. No, they weren't even protesters. They were supporters. 
they were constitutional supporters. So anybody that's against the Trump constitutional supporters is, in fact, the insurrectionists because they want to overthrow the government and the ability of people to, uh, to use their First Amendment free speech rights, even to support the government. They were supporting the government. You know, and I, don't know, I don't know why nobody's made this argument that the Trump people at January 6th were supporting the government. They weren't, pro- they weren't protesting or trying to uh, overthrow it. They're supporting it. They were supporting the constitutional procedure where one representative and one senator could challenge the electors uh, of any state and uh, find a resolution. Now, it's, it's not an accident that the riot started because, you know, the, the government part of the riot, you know, the, uh, the mercenaries that were working with the FBI, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, anybody they hired, Ray Epps, who knows? Who knows how many people there were? But those are the ones that uh, did all the damage and, and broke, they didn't break in, they opened the doors for them. So there's a coordinated effort between the Capitol Hill Police and the FBI to open the doors at the right time, remove anything that uh, said this was a restricted area, bring people into the Capitol for the sole purpose of charging them with trespassing, and then ramp up the charges to seditious conspiracy. All right. When all these people were doing was walking in by the invitation of the people who opened the doors for them and by the bullhorn guy and everybody else. And in fact, some people were actually forced in. They're pushed in. OK, because they had to get them in there uh, in order to use that as the distraction for the real coup that took place under the Capitol so they could twist arms and so that there would be no electoral challenges. So that the, the Trump electors in the seven battleground states would never come up for a vote. That was the idea. That was the coup. And they had to do that. Because despite all the vote fraud, despite all the, the things that they did to steal the election, they hadn't completely stolen it yet because the electors, the Trump electors, still outvoted the branded electors. So in the battleground states of Michigan, Minnesota, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona, there were enough Trump electors from Republican state legislators to basically to, to win the election. There were more than 270, you know, had the Trump electors been uh, the ones that were uh, certified. Well, the whole purpose of January 6th was to make sure that the Trump electors were not certified and that Congress would vote for the Brandon electors, that there would be no challenge. That was the coup. <laughs> okay, that was it. <laughs> you know, everybody misses the whole point of January 6th. The whole point of January 6th was to make sure that no Trump electors were voted on. And they're still trying to make sure no Trump electors are voted on because they're still out there, right? Why, why do you think they're trying to arrest these people you know, for fraud, racketeering, any charge they can make up? Because they know that at any time the state legislators could certify the Trump electors, decertify the Brandon electors, and the game's over. I don't know why they haven't done it. I would have done it January 7th, <laughs> you know, uh, but they didn't, you know, because they're geldings. All of them, the Republicans are worthless. Anyway, so the only time in our history where a viable armed insurrection took place was the Civil War, right? 1860 to 1864, the Democrat Confederacy challenged the Republican Union. Democrat Confederacy, Confederacy under Jefferson Davis commanded the army of uh, General uh, Lee. Okay. That, that was the Confederacy. And they were Democrats. So here's what I'm thinking. If the only viable armed insurrection capable of overthrowing the U.S. government and starting their own government was the Democrat Confederacy in the Civil War, wouldn't that bar the Democrat Party from ever holding office again? It should, according to the 14th Amendment. Listen to this. No person shall be a senator, representative, da, 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 who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States. Officer. Military? Interesting, huh? Or as a member of any state legislature. Or as an executive or judicial officer of any state. So in other words, anybody who was a member of the Confederacy was basically barred from office. Well, the Confederacy was the Democrat Party. They've never renounced the Confederacy. Not that I know of. They never apologized for it. 
uh, they never renounced, denounced, or, or uh, said anything other than they, they want to get rid of their the Confederate battle flag, which has, you know, yeah, that's actually the Democrat flag <laughs> when you think about it. So the Stars and Bars is the Democrat flag of the Confederacy. Uh, but it represents a lot more to a lot more people. It's a lot more complex. We should talk more about that sometime. But basically, the 14th Amendment says that the Democrat Party can't exist because they're the ones that caused a rebellion and insurrection. So why do we have a Democrat Party today? Why wasn't the Democrat Party abolished in 1864 um, or when the 14th Amendment was adopted? Just a thought. So for all those Republican geldings out there that don't know how to defend against the, uh, the, the Brandon insurrection saying that Trump can't run because of the 14th Amendment, the answer is, well, the Democrat Party can't exist because of that 14th Amendment, because Trump's not the one that caused an insurrection. He just wanted people to support the Constitution. So he was the opposite of insurrection. He was a patriot supporting the Constitution, as were all the Trump supporters. The insurrection was caused by the FBI, CIA, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, you know, and everybody involved. Chris Ray, you know, Merrick Garland, Garland, everybody who was involved with overthrowing the proceedings on January 6th, which would be the actual coup, so the Trump electors were never considered never, uh, and never certified. That's the coup. Those are the people that should never hold office again. They are the ones that caused the insurrection. That was the insurrection. Anyway, point made. Okay. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, so I got a couple of stories for you. I'm not sure which ones. I got about like 12 stories and I have none. Well, I have time. You know, I got some time to do this. So I want to play uh, one interview with Mark Thornton in the next hour, and then we'll take a, cover another story or two. And then I've got another, a second interview by Mark Thornton. We're going to get saturated with economics today. Why? Well, because the budget's going to expire here in a couple of weeks. You know, they're going to have to do this, this nonsense again. They're going to bring up the lie that oh, we have to raise the debt ceiling. Well, they don't even have to make that argument. There is no debt ceiling right now. So they're going to raise the debt ceiling that doesn't exist. You know, if it was a debt ceiling, it'd actually stop them. So they're going to raise the debt. They're going to raise the national debt because they can to cover expenses that they want for no reason at all, simply because they want to spend more money than they have. Okay, that's what they're going to do. Um, And so that's uh, because of that, we should understand a little bit about economics before that process happens so you know what's really going on. So I got two Mark Thornton interviews from the Mises Institute. I think you'll find it interesting. Let's take an info break. And what is now? 726. So today is 9-7-23-9-26. And I'll be back with, uh, with a couple of stories for you. Here is your Action Radio contact and website information. The call-in line is 215-383-3832. Our show site is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Same link, live and a podcast. Please share all our shows. We have live chat at the bottom of the broadcast page available worldwide. Sign in to your free account and type away. We have an internet Skype line where you can call the show worldwide also. Please see the broadcast page for our Skype name. Call in during the show to get approved. Our bill writing site is writeyourlaws.com. W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S, writeyourlaws.com. This is where anyone can write a bill and start the process of it becoming law. My paid and free subscription column is at gregpenglis.substack.com. Please consider a paid subscription of $5 per month or greater. For contributions to Action Radio, please go to givesendgo.com slash actionradio. We have over 20 Action Radio Facebook groups. Use the Facebook search window by putting in Action Radio to find our groups. 
My public email is greg at writeyourlaws.com. Please contact me about advertising on Action Radio and helping our mission of freedom. Thank you for listening. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. All right, we're back. So it's, uh, we're going to have a news half hour here, maybe four or five minutes. Depends on my mood. Probably about half an hour or so. We'll see. Anyway, let's, uh, let's get in the news mode. I got a bunch of different stories here uh, to go over. It's only a question of which one. I'm just kind of looking them over because there's there's much to do. And so I, one of the stories, one of the last ones I found before the show this morning, uh, is on Megan Kelly publicly saying she regrets taking the COVID vaccine because now she has an autoimmune uh, disorder that she didn't have before taking the booster. So she actually went uh, uh, way out beyond. You know, a lot of people had uh, one jab and that was enough. Uh, some people, a smaller portion had the second jab and that was way more than they wanted. A lot of people got really sick on the second one. And some people actually went for boosters and got completely destroyed. Uh, and a lot of people died. So, uh, so well, (laughs) they're not safe, but they certainly are effective, but just not what you you had in mind. You know, what are they effective at? You know, killing and crippling. That's what they're effective at. And that's the problem. Anyway, so I know that story, got some other stuff going on. Uh, I'm looking at uh, joining 
uh, this new website, uh, Winkin, and that's from uh, Jason Shepard. So we'll see what's going on with that. That should be fascinating, too. Here's something that uh, didn't get a lot of press, and I want to kind of uh, go over this now. Uh, it says, details of the Amish farmer story prove the FDA and USDA should be dissolved completely. J.D. Rucker, one of my favorite writers, one of the few I read. I've, I've got rid of most of my substacks because it's just, it was just too much, and they were all saying the same things. A lot of writers do that. Uh, that's why I try and write things that nobody else is writing and talk about things nobody else is talking about. Well, J.D. Rucker was the first one to get me thinking more about uh, Vivek Obama Swampy. Now, I didn't trust him anyway. Just something looked wrong about him. Like I say, he reminded me too much of Obama. Um, too slick, too polished, too well-rehearsed, you know, too cliched, all the other things. You know, quest for power, accomplished nothing, came from nowhere. You know, uh, it's just it, it, way too planned. And so he just reminded me so much of Obama. But then Rucker, you know, pointed out some, some things, and I started investigating. I started asking questions. I found a bunch of stuff. And then Chris Clark uh, detailed most of the things that I found three months ago on his own investigation. And so we're all kind of looking at the same things. Chris Clark does the, uh, the Re- Reawaken America tours. Uh, and that's where Judy Mikevitz goes and actually talks about our vaccine product liability bill, which apparently nobody else seems to want to talk about, which is too bad because had you had it two years ago, you wouldn't have any mandates today. Why? Because you wouldn't have any uh, uh, COVID shots today. So, you know, anybody that didn't share a bill, you know, you're the folks that uh, brought about this uh, again. I mean, I hate to be, you know, so direct and, and forceful, but it's true. You know, those that did not share the bill and did not share our shows and did not share the things, uh, especially the bill, you know, had that come to national prominence, there's a pretty good chance with enough people behind it that Congress would have been forced to pass it and put liability on Big Pharma. Well, you wouldn't have any of these things today if that had happened. So, you know, you say, oh, gee, Action Radio, you can't change anything. Well, you've never tried. You don't know. And uh, I actually, I do know. I do know that would have made a difference. And if, uh, you know, this is, why, this is why I want to get on Tucker Carlson show and Joe Rogan show and some of these other really big shows, because once I can work with several million people, I'll show you what can be done. I know it can be done. You know, I know, I know how all this changes. I know how public pressure works. You get enough public pressure and uh, people will, will do what, uh, you know, you tell them to. So we'll see. We'll see if uh, people are actually interested in uh, not having a mandate and, uh, you know, not taking a jab and not uh, being threatened with their job and their, their business and everything else. And, and the, the answer is very simple. Vaccine product viability gets us out of all this, all the mandates, everything. You know, it, it literally is that simple. In fact, it's so simple, I think people don't believe it's possible because it's that simple. All right. J.D. Rucker, September 6, 2023, three days ago. Details of the Amish farmer. He says the story about the Amish farmer who had his cattle seized by the authoritarian Biden-Harris regime has been circulating through its various stages for weeks. Like many people, I heard the basic details and was informed, infuriated by it all. But a deeper dive into James Corbett, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T, really opened my eyes. He says this isn't just a case of food tyranny. This should be the lead story for evidence that the FDA that's the Food and Drug Administration, the USDA, which is the United States Department of Agriculture, and all federal government agencies involved in food tyranny must be dissolved completely. I, I tend to agree. They're not here to protect us. They're only here to protect the globalist agenda. All right? He's got a report from Twitter user, uh, in, was that Inversionism? Inversionism? He says the USDA and the FDA should be considered terrorist organizations for what they do continually to small farmers and businesses. I agree with that, too. Similar to the Rawesom raid, R-A-W-E-S-O-M-E raid, these farmers were doing what's called a cow share, where people in the community all pay front and invest in a cow for milk or meat. This has been done by numerous farms all across the country as a means to avoid using meat processors and big business just to get clean, properly raised, healthy food, 
without all the, ex- and the extra fees and government BS, of course I use the real word, attached. It's the perfect business model that supports local farmers and cuts out the criminal corporations and captured government organizations. As expected, the USDA and FDA can't have any of that happening because they are too busy allowing heavy metals, pesticides, plastics, and forever chemicals. That's a chemical that doesn't dissolve or go away or break down. Forever chemicals in your food or rubber stamping toxic COVID vaccines for your six-month child, six-month-old child. So they went to this farm, farm and took all his meat in fridges and freezers, took it into the dump and threw it away with a court injunction because he refused to listen to their unconstitutional dictates. This is the same food he fed his family with, but they didn't care. Thousands and thousands of dollars of nutrient-dense quality animal foods all thrown away. The FDA and the USDA both need to be completely dissolved. They don't protect public health. They destroy it. And that's from infuriating. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Uh, There was a time, back to J.D. Rucker, he says, there was a time not too long ago when many, if not most of the people who worked for the USDA or FDA did so because they had good jobs that were designed to protect Americans. But like so many agencies, departments, and bureaus within our federal government, the mission has morphed into one dedicated to tyranny. Perhaps many of the government employees are unaware. A whole lot of them have been indoctrinated into the, quote, greater good mentality. There is no such thing, by the way. There is no greater good, okay? Anybody that says they're for the greater good, they're for the greater power. They're for the greater power of themselves, all right? The greater good is the greatest number of individuals making individual decisions with the least government coercion or extortion. That's the greater good. So the only greater good is the, the increase in individual rights uh, and uh, individual power. That's the greater good. Anything else is BS, right? So they talk about the greater good mentality that allows otherwise lucid, in other words, people who, who can understand things and say them well, <laughs> to unhinge themselves from the realities of the situation. Then there are those who know some of what they are doing is wrong, but they're just following orders. Yeah, that's the Nuremberg defense. That's the Nazi defense. You know, the Nazis in the, in the Nuremberg trials in World War II said, I'm not guilty of, of killing you know, people in the Holocaust. I was just following orders. Well, that's not an excuse. That's the same excuse the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife people gave to my friend uh, Larry Downs Jr. And it's on video, all right, when they said he couldn't have two boats together during COVID-1. See, now we're in COVID-2. But during COVID-1, they said, well, you can't put two boats together. He's like, why not? Well, you're, you're too close. You might spread COVID. I said, what, out here in the open, in the open water? I said, are you people crazy? Are you on crack? I well, didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking, right? Well, no, we have to separate you. I said, and he says, why? Have I broken a law? Well, no, but th- these are the guidelines, you know? And then they said the ultimate. We're just following orders, okay? Well, that's not an excuse. That's not law enforcement, all right? That's not a law. You don't enforce orders. If, somebody, if, if someone orders law enforcement to do something and it's not, they're not enforcing a duly passed constitutional law, then that's not something they can do. They're supposed to reject those orders and say, no, I can't. Those aren't legitimate orders. That's their job. So the job of the, of the Florida fishing game and the job of law enforcement across the country is to reject unconstitutional orders. So if the government orders you, know, to, you to seize something because they didn't follow a COVID mandate that could not be issued constitutionally anyway, then the proper role of the, uh, the law enforcement is to say, no, I'm not, I can't do that. That's unconstitutional. You can't give that order. All right. Same thing with Roe v. Wade. You know, Roe v. Wade had a whole abortion program. Well, they, the Supreme Court could not give that order. They have no power to order policy or regulation or law. It was never a legitimate decision. Nobody ever had to follow it. And yet they did. How many people, how many, how many babies were lost because people followed an order that didn't exist? That's the ultimate frustration and insanity and waste. Right? How many other laws have been followed? That, uh, how many mandates were followed? How many people committed suicide from depression during COVID? Because they lost their business, they lost their family, they got divorced, 
They were sexually assaulted, regularly assaulted. How many people, how many problems? There are far more problems with the lockdowns than there ever were from COVID. All right? But, and every one of those was an illegal order. So who's going to pay for that? Those are the questions to ask, you know, especially as we enter COVID-2. What's the cure for COVID-2? Same cure as COVID-1. <laughs> Big tech censorship uh, bills, putting liability on them if they touch anything that you do on social media. And uh, vaccine product liability. Those are, these are the cures. Two bills written over two years ago. That's it. It's that simple. <sighs> Back to J.D. Rucker. He says, like the IRS and the FBI, both the FDA and the USDA should be revamped or scrapped altogether. The only reason I even offer revamping as a possibility is because there are too many Americans who flinch when they hear people like me calling to disband entire government agencies. Oh, I don't. I, I think a large part of our operation at Action Radio is going to be to disband entire government agencies, especially when those agencies have no basis in the Constitution. So, so we're actually complying with the Constitution by destroying these agencies because they can't exist. They have no authority. There's no legitimacy. It's like saying an illegal alien can live here and vote here when that's impossible because they can't even be here. Right? Same logic. Anyway, he says, therefore, a top-down overhaul is weak, but it may be the only viable option. That would be Donald Trump. He says, of course, I'm ignoring the sad reality that nothing will be done. Most of us will vent our outrage uh, outline or even, uh, even at protests, but we'll go unheard, and our representatives in D.C. will do nothing about it. Well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I'm here to change that. See, that's the whole point of Action Radio is to make them listen, you know, is to have so many millions of people saying these are the bills that we consent to be governed by that they have no choice but to listen. Now, we're still constitutional. We're still going through the process. We're not advocating any violence or overthrow or insurrection like the Democrats did in the Civil War. We're not talking about that. All right. We're talking about simply uh, being better lobbyists than uh, big tech, big pharma, you know, uh, Dr. Fascist and the health Nazis and those people. That's what we're talking about. We just have to be better um, at being in politics than they are. It's not hard to do. I mean, the roadmap's there. We've already established the roadmap here at Action Radio. We know what to do. The only question is whether you'll join us or, or be content to raise complaining to an art form, because that's what's happening. Those are your choices. You can be like everybody else in the conservative patriot movement and raise complaining to an art form, or you can join us and do something. I mean, that's pretty much it. All right. He says, food security is under attack. What's happening to Golden Valley Farms is one example of many to come. Our government is, concerning the, is cornering the market on food for a reason, and it's not to protect us against the Amish farmer who has been butchering beef for people without incident for a long time. He says, this is just one of many reasons we launched uh, Prepper. Oh, there we go. Pre- they got, here's the thing, Prepper All Naturals. I need, where's my commercial music? And now, if you want to get Prepper All Naturals, this is a wonderful food source for you at the Amish country. Prepper All Naturals, uh, this is to offer high-quality survival beef for our audience. I've never had a desire to sell food in my life, but when I get the opportunity to get involved in food security, it popped up. I just couldn't pass on it. So Prepper All Naturals, or better still, <laughs> you know, uh, go to our Gives and Go uh, dot com slash action radio site uh, help us out here also looking for large corporations to uh, help sponsor action radio big companies you know glock ruger smith and wesson uh, my patriot supply chick-fil-a you know uh black rifle coffee those are the folks who uh, uh of course i've talked to all of them you know who should be supporting us at least i would hope so okay next article what are the news media for good question huh this is intellectual takeout uh in culture features september 5th 2023 so that would be Four days ago, you know, uh, and this is from Alexander Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, who says, what are the news media for? 
The typical response is that their prime function is dispensing information. They provide us with what we need to know in order to successfully operate in the modern world. <laughs> Sorry. Perhaps the media do perform their function, at least partially. Certainly some of what is reported in the daily news has some role in helping us to make appropriate decisions about our lives. Weather forecasts are an aid in planning travel. Actually, weather forecasts are probably the most important thing. Then the comics, then the sports section, and then the news you already hear repeated other places. All right. He says political reporting, at least in principle, might help us to make decisions about how to vote and otherwise act as democratic citizens. Okay, we're not democratic citizens. Idiot. <laughs> this is a republic, not a democracy. Okay, get that through your thick heads, everybody. This is not a democracy. Anybody that says democracy, you got to laugh at them. See, you idiot. We're not a democracy. We've never been a democracy. We're, a, we're not, not a constitutional republic. That's redundant. That's like saying a republic republic. <laughs> it's kind of stupid. We're a republic, pure and simple. Limited government, defined rights, due process. That's what makes a republic, right? Democracy, lynch mob, you know, voting away other people's income, redistributing wealth. You know, buying votes, conning people. That's a democracy. You know, hiding what really what socialism really is, promising that you'll get everything from other people under socialism, and then opposing tyranny. That's a democracy. Democracy leads to tyranny. Why? Because people are people put other people in power thinking they're, they're going to get other people's money and property, when in reality, uh, they're actually voting in a, a government that's going to take everybody's property. That's why democracies fail. We're not a democracy. Heaven forbid. We never want to be a democracy. Fortunately, they'd have to amend the Constitution to make us a democracy, and I don't see that happening since most people don't know that it says, it says in the Constitution we're a republic. It's fascinating. He says, certainly some of what is reported in the daily news has some role. Okay, I read that. Weather forecasts or native plane travel, political reporting, at least in principle, might help as well to make decisions. Oh, I read that too. But what is the main function of contemporary news media? If we are talking about their demonstrable effects most of the time on most of their audience, it is to depress you. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny so what is the main function of news the main function of news is to depress you to make you feel constantly that the world is in, process, in the process of falling apart to alert you that you can't go on vacation anymore because air travel is destroying the planet to tell you that your air conditioner is the root of all evil and that you will have to roast in the unbearable heat if you're going to be a good person to inform you that everything you do contributes to structural racism and oppression, to remind you of how, how many people are suffering, how many died horribly today, and how many are involved in scandals, to tell you that the markets are doomed and your retirement account is probably going to disappear before you retire, to make you aware that, whoop, don't knock my microphone over, Greg, to make you aware that every product that is made anywhere involves merciless exploitation, exploitation and carries noxious substances that will kill your children to inform you that the planet is going to be as hot as the sun in just a few years and all life will disappear. That's pretty much it. I think you've got it. That's what the news is. And then you to describe you to you how forever chemicals, I love that. That's a new term for me. Forever chemicals are everywhere and probably making your children incapable of having your grandchildren right now. In short, the news media are there to let you know how every day, every hour, and every minute you should be terrified and outraged and obsessed to the point of being unable to experience any happiness save in the form of malevolent wishes for those you are told are the cause of all the misery and evil the media endlessly uh, reiterate to you. Listen to CNN and NPR. 
basically the, the, the Communist News Network and National Socialist Radio, and the rest of them, and for, a, for that matter, listen to or read much of the media that purports to criticize these left-leaning sources from a, a position on the apocalyptic right and trying to find stories that do not fit the same depressing mold. Oh, I know, Action Radio. We just reported a bill this week that, totally changes, that would totally change how federal investigations are done. How they would equalize the power of those being investigated with the federal government that's doing the investigating. How the, the federal government would have to give the same amount of money to spend investigating somebody to the person they're investigating so they can defend themselves against that investigation. That's really good news. Have you shared that bill yet? Have you read it at writeyourlaws.com? Writeyourlaws.com. Click on the menu bar on legislation. Click on citizen bill ideas because we're still working on it. Share the bill. You want to do something? Then do something. I think this will be my new slogan. If you want to do something, then do something. Anyway, he says, this is back to J.D. Rucker. He says, looking for, look, look for any stories about people and good things for one another or about the hope of, and love in the hearts of many of us or about the glory of waking to see another day or about how the spiritual beliefs of most of the people on earth provide them solace in the face of grief and confidence in the face of uh, finitude. Finitude? Finitude? F-I-N-I-T-U-D-E. New word. He says, of course, there is no shortage of news media, and so now and again, such uplifting stories can be found. <laughs> but do the math. Those fleeting accounts of joyful experience in the here and now and of the future, that's what we talk about here and now in the future, uh, as eternal promise and hope are buried a thousand miles below the avalanche of despair, agonized fury, and impotence. That's a bad word. Yeah, we're that uh, we're actually real hope and change. <laughs> you know, uh, Barack Obama's hope and change was tyranny. Okay, his his was tyranny and depression and race wars. Barack Obama, you know, as they say, set race relations in this country back fifty years. That was his job. His just to create a race war. Right? He almost did. Of course, we're not going to play. But if you want stories of of hope and possibilities and optimism and new legislation and and ways to greatly increase, vastly increase our freedom and prosperity. Well, look no further than Action Radio. So if you aren't sharing Action Radio shows, then you're probably not happy <laughs> because we're happy here. You know, it's a, this is a place of great happiness and joy. We talked about that yesterday with Wendy. Listen to yesterday's show. J.D. Rucker says, one of our great forebears, Henry David Thoreau, uh, hated the news media of his time, <laughs> which was, you know, what? Manual printing press, quill pens. <laughs> he says, uh, which he described as the, gr- the gurgling of the sewer. Somehow it is even worse uh, than that today. Uh, I frequently imbibe this fetid material on, in order to write critically about it. But I would be lying if I said I don't often feel like I'm willingly exposing myself to a deadly pathogen when I'm doing it. Well, that's interesting. He says, is there anything to be done in response to the poison of the news media, short of, like Thoreau, moving out to the woods to build a log cabin and spend, your, you know, spend our days observing flora and fauna? But maybe that's not such a bad thing. Uh, no, it's not, actually. He says, even if one does not decide to emulate the author of Walden by retreating to the wilderness, uh, decreasing exposure to the toxins might be a healthy move individually and for the entire culture. William Sapphire's nattering nabobs of negativism, not a great word, words, (laughs) crave nothing more than your attention and spreading their plague absolutely requires it. Perhaps just for each of us, a few minutes fewer every day. He actually used the word fewer. Bless you. A few minutes fewer every day, bathed in the glow of the screen that emulates the doomsday declarations of the hopeless, hysterical hypochondriacs of history, 
Oh, I've, I've got to use that. Hopeless, hopeless hysterical hypochondriacs of history. Uh, another hat to, to Sapphire would be enough to gird us for a successful battle against their warped worldview. Yeah, William Sapphire, columnist. I don't know if he's still alive or still writing. I'm not sure what he's doing. But he was columnist for a long time. And uh, Nattering Nabobs, he's a very good alliteration, right? So Nattering Nabobs of, of negativism, hopeless hysterical hypochondriacs of history. These are classics. Anyway, so much for that. That's, that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, so much for those stories. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah. I'll take another break. Play a couple more things. I like these breaks. It sort of breaks the show up a little bit. So what is now? 7.51? 7.51. Break. I can only be with enthusiasm for so many stories. That's why I do take breaks like this when it's just me. Uh, otherwise, I don't get that same excitement for you, and I don't want to do that. So I pull out my break stuff uh, now. It'll be done, and we'll just have interviews. And uh, if anybody calls, I'll, I'll stick around. If not, I might just play the two interviews, you know, talk between them, and we'll see. You, know, you never know. I'll be back. Just a little bit here. Nine, seven fifty-two. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at sixty-seven fifteen Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stores Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stores Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Grace Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is gracecare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at gracecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. 
We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. Well, this is a surprise and a real treat, someone we haven't heard from for uh, for quite a while. Uh, Jean Verdi, who used to produce the show and had her own segment. Jean, I was looking for your theme music. I must have taken it off. I thought I had it still on the board here, uh, or maybe I've forgotten where I put it, which is more likely the case. But uh, welcome back. How are you doing? Thank you. I am doing good. How are you doing? Uh, uh, today is crazy. Yesterday I was all all reporters all the time. Uh, today is totally different. It's been like me for three hours, so I'm so glad you were able to join me. So, uh, yeah. So where are you? What's going on? What's going on in your neck of the woods? Uh, news, anything you want to talk about, our, our bills, our guests, uh, you know, the fact that you, you, you dearly miss us wonderful people here at Action Radio, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I do. I do miss everybody. It's a, a great group of people and great listeners. Yeah. Anyway, I'm up on Long Island or in Long Island right now, and so it's interesting going from more open-minded to, and I'm not talking people, I'm talking more policies, politics and stuff like that, to more closed-minded. So it's been interesting, especially now as, you know, some places are trying to mandate more COVID restrictions again. Well, you're in the belly of the beast up there in New York. You've got Hochul. You've got Adams. I mean, I mean, you've got probably illegal aliens running up and down the street. You've got uh, people are starting to wear masks again, the idiots. You know, I'd love to, to you know, some, if someone says to me, where's your mask? I'm like, where's your brain? Those things don't work. <laughs> you know, I mean, but in yeah. New York, I remember videos. They, they actually show videos of people. And even on Long Island, you know, you've got to pick up the accent. If you don't talk like you're from Long Island, okay, you've got to come on the show like this. Yeah, we'll get some coffee. We'll talk. Yeah, it'll be good time. Anyway, um, but they uh, were physically assaulting people in stores, and the Karens were screaming hysterically um, at people who weren't wearing a mask, thinking they're all going to drop dead suddenly, even though they don't work. And you know something about health, so, so you can tell me you know, about that. But uh, they're, they're afraid. They're, they're all, I don't know if it's liberal or New York or whatever, but they're all terrified. Of so let's get the inside look. What's going on? What have, what have you experienced well, in the, the, great, the great apple and, and the beyond the great apple? <laughs> Oh, well, the, the interesting apple, I'm thing is, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not. Well, I'm close to the Big Apple, but I'm not in the Big Apple. I'm on Long Island um, in Suffolk County, and here, which I didn't know so much about, um, it is more of a Republican um, base. Oh, it is. So that's, that's so they are a little bit more common sense. And wait, wait. So they're the Republican people. at home, and and then they they go to New York and become Democrats <laughs> when they go to work. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the city itself. And this is just my speculation. The city itself is a totally different entity. They're definitely more, more liberal, more, I don't even want to say more AOC because she's, I don't even think she represents who New York, or, you know, the city is itself. Okay. Which is ironic that she got reelected, even though, you know, so many people that got reelected, you got to wonder if they... How many of them actually won? And I hope to God one day we all find out the truth. 
because we know the truth, but, you know, mm-hmm. to let the truth actually be out there. But I'm well, that, that's a good that question. Day. That's a good question. How many want? I mean, you know, you listen to the show for any length of time. It, it, I mean, every day I talk about how the 2020 election was stolen, uh, how the, the GOP, mm-hmm. which I'm now calling the gelding old party, you know, has done nothing. And my prospects for them, you know, when the when the session starts again Tuesday, November or September 12th, uh, is that they will continue to do nothing. They they elected a speaker whose job it is to to do nothing, just like the speaker before him, Paul Ryan. So you got Kevin McDeep State, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, who's not going to mm-hmm. impeach, you know. And even if they do do the impeachment inquiry, they'll hold a hearing, but they won't actually hold a vote because that's not his job. His job is to stop anything that might help. You know, and they're going to they're going to try and get Mitch McConnell out of office, you know, for even though Brandon's in far worse shape uh, and uh, Fetterman, all these Democrats, but they won't touch them because they're Democrats. So we've got two problems in this country. We've got Marxist, authoritarian, tyrannical Democrats, and we've got weak, jelly spined, worthless, uh, absolutely useless uh, gelding Republicans. And for those of you who don't know what a gelding is, please look it up. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Isn't it interesting, though, that the Democrats. Regardless if they do agree, well, like, let's go back to Pelosi when Pelosi was in charge or thought she uh-huh. was. Um, right. Anything she said, regardless if they believed it or not, went along with it or not, they voted for it. Uh-huh. The Republicans, it's like they talk a good story, but their actions and their words do not line up. And I'd say I wish we could get rid of so many of them, but the way our elections are now, it's like, you can win and you still don't win. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That, yeah. Even if Republicans really win, the Democrats now will... That they yeah, go ahead. Got COVID 2.0 coming right in time <laughs> for the next election. How mm-hmm. ironic is that? And I hope to God people stand up and say, no, like just like you're saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to do what we did before. And thank God there's governors, more of them now, that are saying, no, we're not going to you know, shut things down. It didn't work before. You know, and look at the look at the science. Fauci always said, look at the science. Well, look at the science. We have no science when it comes to the vaccine. Where is the where's the what the bear the bar the bears whatever the reporting? Mm-hmm. No, they don't even have to report it anymore. It's like, are you kidding me? How many people kids have died from the vaccine or related in issues? And what I mean by that, myocarditis. How many kids? How many athletes? that were healthy beforehand. And some you could say, well, they maybe had an issue and they didn't know about it. And that's true. But mm-hmm. why all of a sudden after the ma- the vaccine mandate was all of a sudden you have this uptick in all those things and all the people that didn't have cancer before that, then they got the vaccine and how much, how long after that were they diagnosed with some form of cancer? You know, it's, it's crazy, crazy. Well, we had uh, a very good friend of the show, um, Dr. Peter Pry, was on for years, and he said he was going to get a COVID shot. I said, please don't do it. I said, whatever you do, don't do it. He says, I have to. You know, we were talking off the air, and he's passed on now, mm-hmm, so I can say mm-hmm. it. Um, but uh, he got it for, for travel, international travel, I think Canada and Europe and, and some other things, and they required it. And uh, right, I remember well, him telling us. The government go ahead. did. What's that? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I mean, and he was brilliant. I love listening to him. Oh, you remember? Him. You remember? You that's talk. right. Yeah, you were here when he was on. Oh, God, yeah. yes, yeah. I do. He is yeah. fabulous. Just fabulous. Yep. yep. Just, I mean, the, the amount of his knowledge <laughs> puts me to shame. It was, it was amazing what he knew. But the thing is, the reason I say that's government, I knew someone that worked as a um, 
he worked on a military base. They had to wear masks. It was mandated by the base, the military, that they wear masks in their car. And they were the only person in that car. Oh, my God. I mean, we used to laugh yeah. at that. That was the joke. You know, remember before people actually did it, we said, I mean, people are so stupid, they're probably going to wear masks in their car and wind the windows up. And then we started seeing it. I started pointing and laughing at people. But then there were so many, you got tired of pointing and laughing because there were just too many people doing it. I mean, how do you convince yeah. an entire nation, you know, uh, to be that stupid? Well, it's got to be fear. Fear. You know, and, exactly. And I keep... Fear. And I don't want to say ignorance, but it's following, following the crowd. Oh, this person's doing it, so that must be right. But I think basically a lot of it was fear, fear-mongering. I mean, you look at the news. Every time you turned on the news, what did they do? They showed how many people were dying. But the thing is, how well, many people died because they were put on ventilators and remdesivir? Oh, well, let me tell you, our webmaster, Eric Colley, the creator of WriteYourLaws.com, was killed by a ventilator, was killed in a hospital. Yeah, I know people that were, too, and I think it's sad. Yeah. So, so this is, and I've talked about this with people too. This is very personal. Dr. Peter Pry, I absolutely mm-hmm, convinced mm-hmm. was killed with the COVID shot because he had cancer and it was going away. And I was following him this with him. He had kidney cancer and doctor says, yep, doing fine. It's in remission. You're going to be okay. You know, go for it. Then he got a COVID shot and six months later, he's dead. You mm-hmm. can't tell me that. Yeah. Uh, you that's can't not, tell me. It, uh, it, yeah. There's no connection. It wasn't, wasn't because of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I remember his last you know, couple of shows, I could hear it in his voice. And I, I emailed mm-hmm. him off the air. I said, Peter, take it easy. I said, you need to get over this. And I, I, I pretty much mm-hmm. was convinced he was going to go anyway, just because I, I've seen this too many times. I said, look, you know, it's, it's been uh, wonderful. But he said, you need to rest. I said, don't call the show. He loved right. the show. He loved our conversations. I did too. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually had mm-hmm. them all. I, I went back and I, I pulled out every single one of them for three years. And I put them all together in a file. I've got, I've got this entire collection of shows. And I think it's going to go, it's uh, working, I think it's gone to his family. Well, I got to talk to, Claire Lopez was a friend of his. And so I think it's going to go to the, uh, the Center for Security Policy we used to work. But I've got them all. So we, we have the entire record. We've got this huge record of Peter Pry knowledge. I mean, we're talking, you know, a gazillion hours. Because during the right. lockdowns, you remember during the lockdown, he'd spend like an hour and a half, you know, with us, mm-hmm. just talking. Mm-hmm. We went through the entire history of nuclear weapons because he, he didn't have any speaking gigs, right? And you know him. He mm-hmm. loved to talk. He, he loves to talk more than I do, which, right. is, which is pretty amazing. Um, but he would uh, – I said, well, let, I said, we, I said, you don't have speeches. I said, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. I said, let's just start at the beginning. Let's start with, uh, you know, the, the, let's start with Enrico Fermi and, you know, splitting the atom. I said, why don't you just give us the whole history? So he did. I've got it all. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Kovachak killed that. him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Eric was killed with the uh, the ventilators. Um, so yeah. I mean, I, I pay tribute to these people all the time. I mean, I know what they gave us. There would be no writeyourloss.com without Eric Colley. You know, we would have none mm-hmm. of the the national security. Now, here's another thing people don't know. Peter Pry was the one that got us Bill Gert, the national uh, um, the foreign uh, policy expert, the national security reporter for the Washington Times. He's the one that told mm-hmm. us. February 25th of 2020, that uh, COVID came from the Wuhan lab. He said, well, I can't prove it yet, but I'm speculating. I'm pretty sure this is where it came from. This is February 25th of 2020. This is before most people even knew what COVID was, and we already knew where it came from. So February mm-hmm, 27th, mm-hmm. All right? So two days later, I write a bill that uh, is just as current today as it was then, saying that Congress can only spend half the money on vaccines. The other half has to be spent on early treatments, because I knew about Didier Raoult. I knew about chloroquine. I later learned about hydroxychloroquine. I later was introduced to Dr. Zelenko. He was on the show twice. Mm-hmm. And you know, all this stuff. Now, here's, here's my question, though. 
what what was so different about us here at Action Radio? We never bought into this. Now, maybe it was me. I was pretty arrogant about it. I said, this is wrong. There is no pandemic. I had articles to back me up. I had articles saying that Congress was briefed. Everybody's going to get exposed to this anyway. Our only choice is herd immunity because we're going to, it's going to be out there. You can't stop it. These, these masks are insanely stupid. They're not going to do it. Social distancing, that was meant for droplets. It wasn't meant for aerosols. And these things travel on aerosol. You know, a sneeze can send a COVID virus 200 feet. You're going to, you're going to, you just had six feet apart. You're in like the, 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 the virus zone. And then I did something um, that uh, changed everything for me. I got on my search engine February 20, probably 25th, that same time, 25th, 26th. And I put into the search engine what kills viruses. Because everybody's talking about, well, you got to have the vaccine. I said, wait a minute. It takes 15 years for this thing to, to uh, be effective, if it is effective, to prove it's safe. And we don't have 15 years. It's here now. Okay, that's a stupid idea. And it's just basic logic, right? So then I said, well, mm-hmm. so I go to my search engine, what, what kills viruses? And within three hours, I was, you know, I was more of a virologist than a fascist. Do you remember his full name? Ooh, little trivia, action radio trivia test. Dr. Fascist? No, I don't. Genocidal, no, no, psychopathic, avaricious, narcissistic, no. pathologically lying vaccine <laughs> drug pusher. That takes practice, by the way. Mm. Yeah. yeah it does. That's, that's, yeah. that's Dr. Fascist, no, yeah. Dr. Fascist and the health too. Nazis. Yeah. So, so within three hours, I knew everything about viruses that, that I needed for the show. I knew that viruses could be killed. I knew that viruses could kill viruses. I knew that uh, drugs and viruses could kill viruses. I knew there were drugs that could direct viruses to kill viruses. I had all this stuff out there. I knew that uh, I knew all kinds of things about viruses. There are parasitic viruses that preyed on viruses. You know, it's a fascinating world, virology. Of course, Dr. Fascist isn't a virologist. He has no knowledge of this stuff. He's just basically a grant writer who knows how to work the system. But he's certainly not a scientist. Right. He, only has, he only has a basic <laughs> medical degree. Anyway, so all this stuff came out, and then I started reporting on it. And I think that, for me at least, that was the difference because I already knew that this could be treated and killed. So if it can be treated and killed, why do you need a vaccine? Jean, back to you. But uh, Well, you know, you you missed the whole point. (laughs) I want to go back to when you said why you you didn't report what everybody else reported. And because there's many different facets. One, the election, big, Mm -hmm. big, big. Two, it's like they're driven not – you know the news media doesn't mm-hmm. care about the facts. They don't. They have their own agenda. And yeah. you just look at mainstream, and you can see it all the time. Everything they report, it's one-sided. It's like mm-hmm. even like the um, hurricanes. You know, they report how bad it is, and I don't want to downplay anything because I mean some of the places get hit horribly. But then oh, yeah. after they're done shooting, or not shooting, but after the person's done talking, and then the people that they were talking to, they just get up and start walking away like nothing. You know what I mean? And it's, it's mm-hmm. like versus, oh, my gosh, it's so windy, whatever, whatever. And it, it's like, just just report the truth. That's all we want, the truth as, mm-hmm. as you know it, and not like you're told they're one of your minions, you know, but I think that's big. It's like you, you just look at, like, um, what's covered in Washington. 99% of the stuff, it's like everybody reports the same thing. They report what they want to report. They don't report what's actually going on. Or what they do is they cut out snippets of it so they get the narrative they want. Is it what the person said in entirety? No. Mm-hmm. But that's what everybody's made to believe. So I think the bottom line is this. One, you did your due diligence. Two, you didn't buy into the Kool-Aid. And three, you think for yourself. Thank you. And you're I appreciate not run that. by fear. 
So that's, that's <laughs> my, my viewpoint of it because I was with mm. someone at the time that watched MedCram every single night, What's every that? single night. Uh, it was something from a, a doctor, and I can't remember the doctor from John Hopkins University was getting on and talking about COVID, how many deaths there were, what was going on with it. And this, the person I was with thought, oh, that makes him a, you know, very knowledgeable in COVID. It's like, mm. no, you didn't. Mm-hmm. Not at all. You just, you just, are, you know, regurgitating what you're told from this person. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like... Okay, is this the real thing? But my question is, okay, all these hospitals mm-hmm. admitted people for COVID. They died motorcycle accident? No, COVID. They died cancer? No, COVID. And I'm, my question is, okay, someone has to uh, um, sign off on the death certificate, number one. Someone has to agree to the plan of care, ventilators, mm-hmm. rendesivir, ventilators, whatever. Mm-hmm. Those guys should be charged. And I hate to say it because I'm in the medical field, but it's it's like, yeah, I don't hate to where say it. is their Hippocratic <laughs> oath? Yeah. Where? Where? Where they're supposed to do no harm. It's one thing if you don't know and, and you, you really don't know. But you can't tell me all these people, all these physicians were, that's what they believed, Brandesivir, Brandes, or, um, ventilator, when you know people were dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, how, I agree with you. How can you well, go to work money. every day knowing what you're doing is killing people? Two reasons. One, they wanted to keep their job, and if they had to kill people, if that was a byproduct. They just blocked that out of their head. Uh, they, they convinced themselves they weren't killing people. And the second reason was money. The PCR test. Everything money. about COVID yes. had money. You know, in fact, we have a couple of friends of the show. Uh, Rebecca Hardy, te- uh, Texas uh, for Vaccine Choice, uh, has been a regular on the show. Rebecca Charles, who lost her daughter. Um, to, to the COVID protocols. We had Scott Shara who lost his daughter to the COVID protocols. Well, I'm pretty well versed in this stuff now, but uh, they, they all made money and they made about $130,000 per COVID death. So people were worth more dead than alive. That's why it happened. So from the PCR right. test to, uh, to the COVID, to getting a positive result, uh, to being admitted to a hospital, to getting remdesivir, to being put on a ventilator, to dying, to the coroner listing it as a COVID death all along the way. Every one of those, from, from the, the, the COVID jab, I don't call it vaccination. It's a, it's a gene-altering, you know, body-altering shot. So in the COVID jab, all those things, you know, were paid for. So the $5 trillion right. that the government borrowed to, to create inflation, that $5 trillion went to paying for COVID deaths. To mm-hmm. create the fear, you know, to get more people to mm-hmm. take the vac- to take the shot, mm-hmm. which doesn't you know, work obviously. That, yeah, I know someone in our family that she died during COVID, and she died. Oh, she sorry. had COVID and she died. But did the she thing get the was, shot? No, a few people, but uh, she I think shot? she did. But that, yeah. I, yes, I believe she did because she was okay. she was elderly. She was in a nursing home and back then. Oh, you know, pretty COVID. much everybody uh, in the nursing home got it. We've but never denied that people didn't is, die of COVID, but it's the ones well, who didn't have to die. Yeah. No, but this is what I'm getting at. The doctor mm-hmm. told her family members, her children, that she did not die of COVID. They got the death certificate and what was on it? COVID. COVID. So what did she die of? So she, may have, she may have had COVID, but, I mean, she wasn't put on rindesivir in a ventilator. She just had other cardiac issues, and then she got COVID. Well, right. you know, the COVID could have been a contributing factor to her dying, or if she didn't oh, have yeah. COVID, would she have still died? Probably yes, 
you know what I mean? So it's, it's interesting how even the physicians will lie to your face or lie to your face to say one uh-huh. thing, but then they turn around and write something else. Well, and that's interesting, you know, and this is why I'm so glad um, that um, I chose to have heart surgery in 2016 because two years later or three years later, 2019, I probably wouldn't have done it to this day. And I might have myocarditis. In fact, they told me I had a one in five chance of dying of myocarditis simply because I had a bad valve. You know, it was a genetic defect that uh, the heart murmur that was getting gradually worse. And so they dealt with it, fixed it. I'm fine, you know. But uh, this is before all the COVID protocols. What if I'd been in the hospital? And what if they decided to make money off my death by putting me on remdesivir and a ventilator and having me test positive for COVID? Because they could make anybody test positive for COVID. All they had to do was amplify right. uh, the results enough, uh, the, the cyclic. You know, they cycle them 40 times. Anything over, I think, 20 produces inaccuracies. So they, they recycle these things 40 times, boosting them 40 times the results. Well, everybody has some COVID in their system. Everybody has gazillions of, of things in their system, but it's not enough to make you sick. That's why we have an immune system. And this is the thing right. I've never understood. So, Go ahead. Right. So now I would say as people, mm-hmm. you, you've been through it once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Don't drink the Kool-Aid the second time. Use your mm-hmm. common sense, number one. Research your own information or listen to people and not just one side of the story because, you know, usually one side is not 100% accurate, but mm-hmm. it's like, and, and look where you're getting your information from. Yeah. But the best thing people can do is just try to stay healthy. You know, wash your hands, drink plenty of fluids. You know, if you're sick, you know, got a cold, don't go out with some. Go out and do things. Or if someone else is sick, don't hang around them. You know what I mean? It's, it's like common sense. But mm-hmm. it's like I think, too, just try to get exercise and positive, positivity in your life is huge. You know, it's like. Oh, hey, listen, I haven't been sick since I had COVID before I knew what COVID was. January, early January 2020. And I've got the shows to prove it. I sound like crap. <laughs> you know, I'm really awful on the. I'm asking for volunteer hosts. We we did our, our guest host of the day. We did all this kind of stuff because I couldn't talk for about two weeks. It was COVID, right? But I'm still functioning. I'm still working. Uh, and then I got to the point where I thought, you know what? I can't do this because I'm working a full-time job and doing a full-time radio, two-hour radio show every day. So I'm like three hours sleep a night. And that on top of COVID was not good. So I, I told everybody in yeah. the boss, I said, look, I'm taking a couple of days off. So t- I slept for two days. And I was fine. I woke up and, you know, groggy for another couple of days. But by the time I was done, four days later, and, we're, and I had no medicine. I had nothing. I wasn't that sick. I never had a fever. Didn't lose taste or smell. Um, I just felt like crap. I couldn't lie down because the cough is the worst cough I've ever had. And I couldn't sleep unless I was sitting up. So I, my sleep was like really intermittent. Uh, but I couldn't lie down because I would just start coughing uncontrollably. But once it was done, it was done. And I haven't been sick since. Mm-hmm. Well, a mile yeah. cold I had one. You know, isn't that weird? You brought up good points. Sleep is very important to get, you know, you need sleep, you know, good, good night's sleep. Yeah, definitely. But Same now. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because I know people that have had it three times, four times. Wow. And you're just like, I mean, I think some people are just more uh, immune to it. They're just more susceptible. Susceptible. But yeah, I've known people word, that, yeah. yeah, some people were in the same, like, I even know when I got it. Mm-hmm. Nobody else got it where, where I was at. Okay, and then mm-hmm. I know other people, their families, two of them got it, two of them didn't. And it's so interesting. Why? Why did you get it, two don't? Huh. It, 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 did you, how, how severe were your symptoms? Is, how severe were your symptoms? None. I mean, virtually, I went, at the time, I was working in the nursing homes, and so I had to get tested twice a week. 
And oh wow, Greg, to be honest with you, sometimes three times a week. To be honest <laughs> with you, how much of that crap that was stuck in my nose is cancer causing? Well, that's you the know, question really, I have. And how far did did you let them put it up into your nose as far as they wanted to? I mean, that'd be my well, thing. Well, then we did no. Then we did it ourselves. But when I first got yeah. tested, when it first came out, I mean, I thought they were going up into my brain. Yeah, they went that far, and then they realized they don't have to go that far. But where I was at at that time, the National Guard even came out one time and did it. And the ironic thing is they did it, and they lost in my paperwork. So I had to go get it done again. And See, the ironic thing is that the infectious it's, disease person, the nurse there, she had seen me be in there getting tested. So she knew I got it tested. But they put them in these big envelopes. So how can you lose a big envelope? Well, why don't they just have it on site? I mean, you know, here's the thing, too. What we should do is get, if you're worried about cancer in the PCR test, let's get a PCR test and send it to an independent lab. Remember the parents that uh, took their, their kids' masks? And I posted it. We have our, our vaccine project. But, I, I, you know, it's easy to find. Just go to town hall and, and put in town hall, um, comma, uh, parents who got their kids' masks tested. And they found pneumonia, <laughs> you know, they found all these bacteria and germs and things when the kids wore the mask just for one time, eight hours. And they got them tested. It was like a Petri dish. So right. the masks are a breeding ground. It's yeah. like wearing a Petri dish in front of your face. It's a mask. It's a germ, bacteria, and virus breeding ground. So they actually make kids sick. You know, and that's why they're so hard. This mm-hmm. thing about masks. I've been, now, has, has a study been done to, as to how sick people got with just regular things, you know, because they're wearing a mask? Has anybody, were there increase in colds and flu and uh, uh, maybe even pneumonia? Were there increase in bacterial infections, strep throats, things like that? Were there increase in anything, uh, colds from people who were wearing Was masks? Was there an, even any people... flus that year? Uh, well, there was. Did they didn't call it flu. They called it COVID. Yeah, they called it COVID. Yeah. yeah. But was there an increase? Do people with masks, is there a study that shows that they have a measurable increase in, in bacterial, viral, or what's the germ um, infections because they're wearing masks or just the fact that they're wearing masks and they had an increase. Has that ever been done? Uh, none that I know of. And to be honest with you, are they really going to do it? Or if we, they yeah. do it, are they really going to so, be able to publish the results? Because of Well, good question. So what do you the, think? The, the people in, I don't want to say politics, but like the CDC, the mm-hmm. National Institute of Health, all those, you know, it, it's like they're as corrupt as corrupt can be. I really always, you know, as a, years ago, respected them. No, right. not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but another thing that we forget, too, is right. what happens is the kids. I can't tell you how many. I was working with children last year. How many right. children I was working with because, and I don't even work with, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist. How many had anxiety? Fears, mm. just fears that you didn't see before, like fears of death, just, just, and then not being able to get along with other kids, you know, yeah. poor self-esteem. I mean, I had six-year-olds, five-year-olds that wanted to kill themselves, you what? know, had Why? no friends. I mean, are you kidding me? And what's that from? Well, isn't, is it, is it really, would they have been that same way if they wouldn't have experienced COVID? Well, these kids I mean, and I'm not saying getting COVID. I'm saying being around kids... when it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, kids didn't get COVID. And if they did, they didn't know it. And if they did know it, it was like a cold. I mean, the, the symptoms for kids were so minor. You know, I don't think any kid died of it unless they had uh, predisposition to have, you know, comorbidities or fatal conditions anyway. I don't think any kid but died of COVID. But what they did in schools. Yeah. 
I'm, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're preaching to the choir because look what yeah. they did at the schools. Mask. They, you know, put plexiglass mm-hmm. up. You know, the teacher couldn't come on the other side of it. You know, or oh. kids had to be six feet apart. You know, in the lunchroom, uh-huh. wherever. And it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, it's it's how sad, how very sad. And, yet, and a friend of mine <laughs> made a good point. She okay. said, "Do you remember your kindergarten teacher? Do you remember your first grade teacher?" I was like, "Yeah. I mean, I don't remember." so much what they look like now because it's been a long time ago, but I remember them. And she mm-hmm. goes, you know, her sons, they're in elementary, they were in elementary school at the time. She goes, mm-hmm. they wouldn't be able to pick their teacher from last year out in the lineup if you had a group of, you know, because they never saw their teacher except wearing a mask. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. You know what I mean? It's, it just, it's like. See, I can visualize all my teachers. I can visualize my kindergarten teachers. Well, not so much kindergarten, but first grade, second grade, third grade. And then I went to Australia for fourth grade, fifth, sixth grade, seventh. And then I was in, well, fourth grade was kind of split. Some in Canada, some in, in Australia. They actually, uh, um, it was a weird situation. And then I went back and did like half of eighth grade. Then I had to start eighth grade over again. And I missed half of fourth grade and I had eighth grade and a half. <laughs> you know, it was weird. But I can visualize all my teachers pretty much all the way through school, all the way through college. It's pretty weird. They're, they're sort of like indelibly printed on my brain. Anyway, th- yeah, there's... Um, poor kids can't because they didn't, yeah. they didn't get there to see no them. Pain. I mean, they saw them, yeah. but they didn't really yeah. get to see them. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yeah. how, I mean, why? For what reason? Because adults were fearful? And I can't even say fearful. They just didn't do their research. And they had, you know, it's like, I don't know. And, and now when it goes around again... And there's schools mm-hmm. now having them wear mask mandates. I mean, what do you do if you say no? Will they kick your kid out of school? I mean, because technically they can't Probably. they can't force someone to wear a mask. Right. And they can encourage it. <laughs> they can peer pressure and kids. You know, I mean, kids are susceptible for peer pressure. You take a five year old kid, you know, and you tell them they're going to drop dead if they don't wear a mask. They're going to wear a mask. They don't know why. Or if everybody else is doing it, they're going to do it simply because everybody else is doing it. You know, you, you can't do that to kids. But my, remember my position on that? Everybody thought I was crazy. As soon as the schools closed, I said, good, <laughs> leave them closed, sell the buildings, fire all the teachers, sell those buildings to private school entrepreneurs and start an entirely new private system. That was my, that was my uh, thing. And people said, Greg, you're crazy. You can't do that. We need the public schools. I said, why? I said, look what they're doing. They're insane. They're run by insane people. They're run by Marxist, you know, cultural demons. I said, these people aren't teaching. They're indoctrinating. I said, close them all down. Start with private schools and let them teach good stuff that the parents, uh, you know, select for their kids to learn. What's the problem? Well, and, and, and we can do that again. I, I agree with you 100%. 100%. Yeah. Because you know what? We're, the United States is what? The bottom of the list in, or close to it in education? Mm-hmm. And, and I know well, some fabulous design. teachers because I used to work in the schools a lot. I know some fabulous teachers and I know some that uh, I wouldn't even want my my worst enemy, if I had one, to have that mm-hmm. teacher because they were so bad. They didn't want to teach. They were miserable. And, mm-hmm. so the, and, and I was in the classroom enough retirement. to say this. Yeah, they want their retirement Yeah, or money. tenure. They want to get yeah. tenure, and then once they get tenure, forget it. You can't do anything with them. And then mm-hmm. you have to have a principal that's uh, – I don't know how to say this the, – the principal that's going to do the right thing too and not mm-hmm. just go through the motions and let things slide because they don't want to cause waves. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. principals have it, to be it, actual administrators. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, kids, 
kids, I mean, I never liked school. Ironic, I didn't like school until I got to college, and then I loved college. Yeah, and I loved school then. You know, I loved to yeah. learn. But it's like well, that's because you could pick your own classes. School, that's school. why. No, I just you weren't forced to take I things. Just, yeah, right. And and it was like how I learn is not how I was taught, and it's mm. and it's just me. But right. it's like that. The thing is, I mean, and kids learn differently. And and it, yeah, everybody wants the perfect student. But you know, I always I always said the perfect student, meaning someone that just sits there, does their work, doesn't doesn't say anything as far as does what they're asked, answers questions, whatever, pays attention. Those kids you really don't have to teach. They can learn on their own. It's the kids right. that have difficulty focusing. They may be slower learners. They may not um, process things as fast. They may just act out. And mm-hmm. those are the ones that you really have to learn how to teach. And those are mm-hmm. the ones the teachers want to take out of their rooms. I mean, I was in a room once where this kid, he was like that. The teacher would just give him crayons and a color, something to color and have him lay on the floor and color. Mm-hmm. I'm like, because she didn't want to deal with it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. are you kidding me? So what is this? What is he learning? That he can act like this and he gets out of learning. You know oh. what I mean? I, I just, oh my gosh, just crazy. But um, yeah. And so now you're right. I, I think um, now it'll be interesting to see what happens again with what they do because they I don't know if things have rolled out a little faster than they thought but supposedly it was supposed to happen around the 15th of September but since mm-hmm. Jill Biden got the COVID before the 15th that's impossible she's got two boosters she can't get COVID it's safe and effective Jim what are you talking about yeah isn't that what he said you get the you get it and you or you get the jab See, and I don't believe you won't get COVID I don't believe for a second that she has COVID don't believe it for a second. Well, you know, I like they don't... say, people that have COVID, like the political people and things like that, they get COVID. It's a sign that they, and I'm so, sounding like someone else, but it's a sign that they're like in Gitmo or whatever. But she, Jill, for, for being a doctor in education, she is the worst, how would you say, um, mascot for education. She's done nothing <laughs> to improve education. Of course not. Nothing. No. Now, her job is to uh, get power and wealth by uh, keeping Joe Biden uh, in the White House through elder abuse. That's her job. Well, her also, job is- and to try to keep them in there to cover up all the money they got from Hunter. You can't yeah, tell me she didn't get money from Hunter. Oh, of course she did. And she, also she, married, she, married the, the she married the most corrupt person you know, on the planet, Joe Biden, who, who even admitted yeah. to being a, a financial prostitute. Uh, on video, I, I I played that video. You right. can find. I just put uh, just put uh, Joe. Go to YouTube and put Joe Biden admitting he's a prostitute for money. I mean, he actually said it. And this you know, back when he, when he oh, was yeah, saying, yeah, yeah, I, I know that. But, but also, I, I I wonder mm-hmm. too how much he had, and I could be totally wrong. And if I am, I would admit it. But yeah. how much he had with his wife wife's death in that car accident? Because you can't oh, tell he, me him and Bill to weren't with? together before that. Ooh, do you want to investigate that? I did before, and yeah, okay. there's her ex-husband said yeah when um, um, she had a Corvette and they it was in an accident and someone called her ex-husband and said something about her being in an accident. He goes, well, something who's driving? Joe. And supposedly they didn't meet at that time. Wait, so now I don't know much about this. Okay, but I heard that his first wife and was one of the kids died in an accident too, or, or mm-hmm. what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so Joe Biden's first who who is his first wife? Do you know who her, what her name was? Oh, I don't know her name. I don't know her name right offhand. I don't remember it. 
Because this would be a great investigation for you. So, uh, and I'd be curious. Yeah. This would make a, a great report. You know, the mysterious death of, uh, you know, Biden wife one. You know, and, and was she driving a, the thing she was driving a Corvette? There's, there's, yeah, well, not at that time. Not at that, or not he was driving. Died. No, this is Jill had the Corvette. And Joe was driving it and got in an accident. And supposedly they didn't know each other. Uh huh. Do you think that that uh, Joe pulled a Henry VIII, had his wife killed? Well, you just gotta wonder. I mean, put it this way: in We're speculating, folks. We don't know for sure time, yet. I would say no, no. People wouldn't okay. be that cruel. But look at him. Look at what he did to get into power. So I, I wouldn't put it past him. Why? He stole the presidency. Because when he got sworn in. When he got he sworn in, they swore him in in the hospital. Was it, like, was it Hunter? I think it was Hunter in the hospital room with, because that was after the accident. You cut out for a second. So it's, it's they swore all, in the hospital. It's Joe all, Biden was sworn in in the hospital? Yes, because he was visiting his son in the hospital because that was after his first wife died. Swore him in for what, so the Senate? Yes, yes. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. Mm. Yes, that's what I was told. I just I just saw that recently. Well, let's, uh, but, yeah, let's take a look into this. Still, I, uh, I've never I looked into that case. When I was still reporting, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I looked into the stuff with his first wife. And, you know, the thing is, it's all, I don't know if you want to say conspiracy theorists. All, no, we don't, you know, we don't, I don't call know how much of it's no, really no, Jean, true Jean, or we, not. Uh, but since you've been here, we don't call them. speculation out there. We don't call them conspiracy. You can't tell the truth, save his life. Yeah. Gene, we don't call them conspiracy theories anymore. We call them ongoing investigations. Well, that, yeah. And nobody will <laughs> ever know. Nobody will ever know. Because it could well, have been just, unfortunately, fluke of nature, you know, yeah. that, that she, you know, she died with her, with her other son. And I mean, horrible. I wouldn't want anybody that to happen to anybody. No, I'm not, but, I'm not you know, saying it wasn't a horrible tragedy. Him, I'm just saying, was and, it self-inflicted? Jill, I don't think their relationship is quite as a trade it to be just put it that well, way early on we 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 were speculating yesterday i think i can never speculating uh it's like uh, who is jill biden sleeping with now because joe probably can't do it anymore so who's jill with these days who in the white house staff is uh with the first lady shall we say but 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 <laughs> greg do you really think that is the real biden i mean look at him I mean, oh, how many yeah, times I, has he changed his ears, his his face? And and I know people change as we get older, but they don't even look like the same person. No, no, he's had plastic surgery. There was somebody that came on. Plastic surgeon did a video. You can get it on YouTube, talking about he's had okay. at least a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars worth of work, at least, probably more. Well, they didn't do a so good job. Why. No, they did a terrible job, but they always do. Look at uh, Meg Ryan. Uh, you ever, ever seen pictures of her <gasps> lately? Yeah. It looks, it looks horrible. So, and, and what's wrong with aging? You know, and here's a funny thing, though. Uh, I'm having such a low-stress life right now. I'm having so much fun. My hair's getting browner. <laughs> a friend of mine told me that. So I'm losing gray. I'm 63 Good years old you. and I'm losing gray. Yeah. You know, what, what are the chances? And it's simply because I'm really happy. Things are going well. You know, I don't have a full-time job on top of this. I'm not getting three hours sleep a night. I've been through that. I don't have to do that anymore. You know, and so, so my life is, is, is ecstatic right now. Uh, we've got some potential to, to do some incredible things. Um, one of them is I'm, I'm working uh, with some folks that know Chadwick Moore, who was on the show. He's the biographer of Tucker, uh, uh-huh. Tucker Carlson. So I'm trying to get um, a uh, discussion, uh, a TV discussion with Trump and Kennedy at the same table, just talking about the issues hosted by Tucker Carlson. 
That's the big idea. That's that would be really idea. good. It would be good to see their, their yeah. viewpoints because, yeah. Well, they're the non-deep both, state candidates. Most level-headed. Yeah, we could call it the yeah. non-deep state debate, you know, because the, the Republicans hate Trump and the Democrats hate Kennedy. It's a perfect debate. Get to talk about that. Right. But they're both right, serious right. people. They both love this country. Uh, they just have a different way of uh, fixing it. And that would be a fascinating right, right. discussion. Okay, now here's the big idea. It was. I'm hey, trying to work. I've got to go on just a few minutes, but I want oh, okay, your take on I, I want okay. your take on um Michelle Obama running for president and um did you watch the thing last night on Tucker and um what was it? The the o- guy who lives in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Larry <laughs> Larry, somebody, yeah. So this guy, so for folks, that, I, I was going to post that. I tried it. I don't know how to do it, but anyway. So get Tucker on uh, on X, you know, formerly Twitter. And Elon Musk, that was the stupidest thing he ever did. You should have left it Twitter. The, the little birdie was cute. Okay, the X looks terrible, uh, unless it's yeah, on a pirate's yeah. treasure map. All right. So this is far more important. Than Mich- Michelle Obama is not going to run. I, everybody I've I've listened to, the serious people like Dick Morris and stuff. So why why should she? Why would she? Re- she hates politics. You know, she wants power and she wants adoration. But she just wants to work for it, <laughs> you know. She wants to no, sit but there she and, went and, anyway because Brock was. Nah, 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 she's not going to do it. I don't. I don't think for a second that uh, she would lower herself to actually, you know, be in a position where she'd have to work. When's the last time she had a job? Mm-hmm. She's not going to have. A, she doesn't yeah. want a job. Yeah. No, she doesn't want to work. She wants to be. Uh, she wants to uh, do what she used to do when uh, Barack was president. You know, hop in Air Force One and take her friends and family on vacations at our expense. That's what she did as first lady. She took trips, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Barcelona, <laughs> where else did she go? You know, but that's what, but I don't think she's going to run at all. But what I think is far more fascinating is the fact that Tucker Carlson, uh, the best line of his interview. So he interviews Larry, what's his name? The guy that uh, had, uh, if I can say this, yeah, I guess I can, oral sex with Barack Obama. So he basically did Barack, <laughs> you know, apparently several times. All right. And I'm thinking, to myself, oh, my God, this is, you know, let me do the old standard. Can you imagine if this were Trump and, and some dude, right? Okay, um, but right. if Barack Obama, who we've known has has uh, either bisexual or homosexual experience, um, you know, of course, it makes me wonder, you know, how Sula, apparently his relationship with Michelle, that Larry, I forgot his last name, Bridges, Larry Bridges, Larry something, anyway, said that uh, the marriage was already on the rocks, and this is back, you know, I guess uh, when was uh, this is like nineties, okay, late so 90s. Obama's yeah, late nineties, right? So Obama came out of nowhere and suddenly became president. Uh, 2008, and then 2012, because uh, Trump went in 2016. So 2008, 2012. So we're talking like late 90s, 96, 78, whatever it was back in there, back in those days. And yeah, he comes forward. And then, and then Carlson says, gee, I wish I could have interviewed you, know, you back in the, in, the, in the 90s when this happened. He says, of course, the interview never would have aired, <laughs> you know, but now he can. So Tucker, Tucker has this incredible freedom. That to me is fascinating. This guy should be national news. I mean, uh, you know, Lewinsky, who did this to uh, Clinton, right, under the desk in the White House, yeah, was yeah. worldwide news, worldwide mm-hmm. news, okay? And that was a heterosexual affair. Of course, she was a young intern, so it's statutory. Uh, was she 19? She's 19, so it's not statutory rape. Something like that, yeah. It's just really immoral, <laughs> you know, and definitely sexual harassment. And we're talking about, uh, you know, intern, president of the United States. Do you see a power imbalance there? I do. <laughs> so, you know, that's like the definition yeah. of sexual harassment. Um, but that was worldwide news. And then uh, Clinton launched a bunch of missiles into Bosnia and Herzegovina to get uh, Monica Lewinsky off the news. Um, but, uh, but why is this guy not news? You would think right. so it would be more exactly. scandalous 
that a dude, you know, having sex with Obama while they're doing cocaine in some limo driving around Chicago, that's not news. That's right, huge. Exactly. You know, yeah. and that should have been that should have been out before the campaign. Now, again, let's reverse the situation. If a prominent Republican was having an affair with a dude doing cocaine, driving around you know, their you know city, you don't have to be news before the campaign. And hell, they should make it up. They would yeah. just say that they would just make it up on a Republican just to, just to make them look bad. Roy Moore, remember Roy Moore? Mm-hmm. Roy Moore had sex with fifteen year olds in shopping malls. No, he didn't. And all the people that accused him disappeared after the election. Who else had the, uh, the right. fake accusation? Matt Gates had some fake accusations. Jim Jordan had fake ac- I call it the, obliga- the obligatory Democrat sex scandal. So they, they force these things yeah. on Republicans. Hey, Greg. You got to go? Sorry, I just have – yeah, I got to go, but you keep talking because I'm going to say goodbye to yeah. everybody and I'll listen to you on the radio, okay? <laughs> well, actually, I was going to play an interview. I've got, I've, I've got a couple of back-to-back interviews I think I'm going to get to. Uh, Mark Thornton on okay. economics. But I've just said the news that I want. Thank you for calling. Oh, I'm on a roll welcome. now. Have All a great right. day. And I'll find your theme. I got to find your theme for next time. Okay. okay. Bye, Jean. Boy, I feel like I've been cut off mid-sentence. <laughs> there she goes. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> that was crazy. So, so Jean produced the show for for several months, um, and uh, we'll see. You know, maybe maybe I'll get lucky and we can get her back on. That'd be fabulous. Uh, I, got, I can't believe I don't have her theme. I must have moved it uh, after she uh, stopped producing. Um, and uh, but you know. I have a bunch of stuff. Well, I do that because there's only I, there's only so many audio clips I can maintain here. But um, let me put that one back. I thought I had it. I really did. I should never assume. All right. So we've got a little time here. I played my commercials. I don't have to do that anymore. Played all the stuff I have to play. So this will give us a little, a little break. This would be a good time to to play these two things since I do have them. Uh, and I don't want to just read a bunch of news stories. It gets boring. But let's just suffice it to say it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Um, when uh, Congress comes back next week. So not a lot's going on. i got a fun show tomorrow plan. i got uh, uh, Tara D. with the uh, Animal Shelter Report. We've got Derek Park with the Financial Report. Uh, I've got Mike Clinch with, the, uh, with Mr. Science. And then the, in the, the last hour, I don't have anything. So that's when I'll probably go over, you know, the, the, probably Pianchio will me them for the summary of the week. But that was great to have Gene on. That was really fun. All right, so let me uh, scroll down here, and let me get this all set up for you. So Mark Thornton, again, economist, really brilliant guy, um, was on the show twice. And I've never done this. I've never played back-to-back interviews with someone months apart, but it might provide some continuity or he might be double up, doubling up on information. I don't know. Either way, it should be interesting. Uh, but I think it'll be more interesting than listening to me read news stories. Uh, we just had the most interesting conversation already. Talking to Gene, love talking to Gene. So let's see what happens. Okay, there's the first one. There's the second one. All right. So the first one, July uh, 10th of 2017. So this is six years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Math is not good. And so Mark Thornton is one of the chief economists at the Mises Institute at Auburn University. Mises Institute, uh, the Austrian School of, Economic, of Economics, free market, you know, really smart stuff. And uh, it was just, uh, it was amazing to talk to him. I got him on twice. And I'll probably, uh, this way I want to put both these interviews on, on one podcast and I can send him the podcast and say, hey, Mark, it's been six years. You want to come back? <laughs> this is how I get some of my guests back by actually doing this. So it is now 8.32. I can get both interviews in before 10 o'clock. And let's just, uh, let's just get going here. And then we'll talk to you all. Uh, let me see. Nobody's calling. Nobody's on live chat. Yeah, no problem. Let's get to Mark Thornton 1. And again, any reference to WBY or phone number other than 215-383-3832 uh, or any, any of those other references, that's from the recording from my previous station, WBY 1330 AM. 
uh, Northwest Florida's news and talk leader, the great WEBY uh, from Milton, Florida, great independent station that is now no longer <laughs> gets part of the Fox Sports Network stuff. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Here's Mark Thornton. <laughs> Yeah, baby. <laughs> Time to get into one of my, my favorite topics here. Probably one of the most misunderstood, misused uh, things that we hear about every single day is economics. You know, whether it's stock market reports or uh, inflation or unemployment or all these things going on. It all comes under the great heading of economics. So uh, every once in a while, it's really nice to get somebody that knows what they're talking about so we can explain those things to us. And so we have a very special guest I would like to introduce at this time. He is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He serves as the book reviewer editor of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. His books include The Economics of Prohibition, Tariff Blockades and Inflation, The Economics of the Civil War, The Quotable Mises, The Bastiat Collection, An Essay on Economic Theory, and The Bastiat Reader. Please welcome my very special guest, Mark Thornton. All right, hand around the applause, and the crowd goes wild. Mark Thornton, how are you? Hey, I'm great. I'm glad to be on the air with you. Oh, good. I'm so glad you're here. Now, the Mises Institute, you're not too far away from us. We're here in, in uh, Milton, Florida, and you're in uh, Alabama, right, at Auburn? We're in Auburn, Alabama, and it's a beautiful ride down to Pensacola. Oh, there you go. Well, how can we locate it there, just out of curiosity, as opposed to Washington or where all the other think tanks are? Well, you know, Auburn University is here, and it's had a long uh, tradition of uh, – free markets here, and uh, and so we didn't want to locate in Washington, D.C. We didn't want to locate in New York City. That's not who we're trying to teach and influence. Um, you know, to, those are very expensive places uh, to live and to work, and so being here in Auburn, Alabama, it's inexpensive, and it's uh, where our audience is, mm. and uh, we love it here. Uh, we've been here for 33 years now. Oh, cool. And... Uh, bigger and better than ever. Okay. Who are you trying to teach and influence then? The American people, the people of the world. Okay. Um, you know, we're not uh, talking to Washington, D.C. We're not trying to influence them. We believe that um, as Americans and as citizens of the world learn about uh, the truth about economics, uh, that they'll force the politicians to do the right things. And, you know, talking to politicians is a losing battle. Okay. Uh, we have to influence the hearts and the minds of everyday Americans. Hmm. So you're a senior fellow. I've always been curious about that term. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's kind of a nebulous term. I mean, I'm here, I'm doing research, okay. um, I'm writing, um, I'm teaching. Here in our programs, we have programs for undergraduates, graduate students, uh, academics, and we have conferences around the country for uh, just the regular citizens. And so you know, I do a lot of different things, okay. uh, but it all comes under that rubric of, you know, I'm not the oldest person <laughs> here. <laughs> well, that is say you were the senior fellow, just a yeah. senior. Okay, I, I was just curious how that's how to work because I hear that in different different places, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, what exactly that means. And it, it always seems to mean something different depending on the organization. So I got a ton of questions for you here. We're going to kind of start, you know, basic and get progressively more complex. And callers are welcome anytime six two three thirteen thirty as we try and make sense of a very uh, difficult topic. So let's talk about the the Mises Institute. Uh, what do you guys do there? Well, you know, we're a nonprofit uh, economic education foundation, and uh, we, we publish books, we have newsletters, 
We have one of the greatest economic web pages in the world. It's M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. And it's written for everybody. It's not written, you know, with jargon. It's not written with mathematical formulas. It's everyday, ordinary economics. Um, and it's one of the largest economic web pages in the world uh, where you can download not just our Mises Daily article, but we have a blog. And uh, you can actually download uh, books and uh you know, it's it's humongous, really. It's, yeah. it's um, that's an economic term, isn't it? Humongous. You can actually measure that, right? Uh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I asked one time because I'm not a techie in any respect. Okay. You know how much? Uh, you know how would the the tech people measure it? And they said something about, you know, there's we've got downloads of uh, 20 terabytes per month or something like that. Oh. And I that's calculated. Humongous. I calculated that would be. Um, 29 billion um, copies of Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Uh, so it's a lot of traffic, and it's it's the interest in what we do is worldwide. As a matter of fact, we have a summer uh, fellows program where we bring in graduate students and new PhDs okay. uh, here at the uh, at the institute, and about half of them are from other countries. Oh, interesting. So local people here, if they want to learn more about this, they can come for, like, summer sessions, special programs, all kinds of different things you have, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, it. the first the first uh, uh, step is to go to the webpage, okay. org, and then just look for what you're interested in. Um, and a lot of our conferences are actually broadcast on the Internet as well. So it makes it easy. Oh, interesting. Do you ever have uh, Congress folks, like, could I send and uh, recommend my congressman to go learn economic stuff before the budget battle, for example? Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> the only congressman that's ever been here that I'm aware of is Congressman Ron Paul of Texas. Oh, now, that's fascinating. Now, he's very much, I guess, in favor. Of, we're going to get into what the, the, the Mises is and von Mises himself and, and what, the, you know, what you stand for. But why Ron Paul, do you think? Just, be, just because he is such a free market uh, libertarian person? Oh, yes. And he's been involved with the Mises Institute. Uh, from the very beginning, oh, okay. the Mises Institute was founded by Lou Rockwell, okay. and Lou Rockwell was Ron Paul's uh, first chief of staff when he went into Congress. Oh, interesting! And so Ron has been very, very uh, helpful and influential in the growth of the Mises Institute. And uh, Lou Rockwell just recently stepped down as the president of the Mises Institute and became its. Uh, chairman, okay. uh, and he was replaced by Jeff Deist, who was Ron Paul's last chief of staff in Washington. So while we're not actively trying to influence Washington, we have had some very important people come to us okay. from Washington, D.C. Now, I'm trying to actively you know, influence Washington. That's the whole point of uh, what I want to do, which is turn talk radio into action radio. So you could be an incredible resource for me. Um, what I want to do is actually write bills on the air once our, our website is up and running properly and uh, be able to take uh, regular folks and be able to you know, put, uh, put very simple bills into, into action and have them go directly to Washington. If we could have some economic backup for things, I think that would be incredibly uh, useful and, and could really expand you know, what we want to do with, with citizen legislatures in ways that have never been done before. Yes, and that's a great opportunity for American citizens to send a message okay. uh, to Washington, D.C. I think we're doing that, and I think we're uh, very often sending good messages to Washington, D.C., uh, in contrast to just clamors for more money and more spending and, you know, more 
government largesses. Um, you know, I think if we send Washington, D.C. a message of getting back to constitutional government, uh, would be a great start. Yeah. Funny you should say that. I sent you my article on the, the constitutional budget. Uh, what do you think? Oh, I think that's a great first step is, you know, to prevent Congress supposed to do yeah. and spend money on what it's not supposed to spend money on. Uh, that would be a great place uh, to start. I think you can go much further than that. I think that the things that the Constitution authorizes, I think we're very often spending way too much money on those things as well. Okay. And, and so I think that's a great great place to start. Yeah. What I'm hoping is that maybe you can pick up on that, take that article, and then put out a more of a detailed report, because you've got a lot more resources than I do and reach a lot more people, um, as to say what the government should be doing, and just have that maybe as an annual thing where you say, this is, this is, here's a constitutional budget based on you know, Article 1, Section 8 for today, and here's what your government is spending money on, and kind of have that, like a contrasting report, and it might be interesting to see where we should be compared to where we are. Just a thought. Yeah, it's a great article, and I, I would highly recommend it to everybody out there in your audience. Okay. Well, they, they hear enough of me. But anyway, you said I wrote an article called The Constitutional Budget. It's in Canada Free Press. I took Article 1, Section 8, the only authorized powers where Congress can spend money, and attached budget figures to them. I picked the departments that came under those things and uh, basically put their, their last recorded budget, put it together. It came out to about $1.1 trillion compared to, I think, the $4.5 trillion that they're spending now, something like that. So it was about a quarter. Of, uh, of what the budget actually is, is constitutional. Interesting. Um, gotta, we're going to take a break in a little bit here, but before we do that, I want to find out what Austrian economics is. Can you kind of walk us through from the beginning? And I've got some quotes from your website here. I want to go over various people of Austrian economists. But what is Austrian economics compared to, say, classical or what, whatever we're doing now? Well, economists in Austria in the 19th century fixed a lot of the problems in the classical school of Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill. They never got uh, some important uh, points about supply and demand and cost and price. They never got those things cleared up. And, and those, Aust those economists in Austria fixed those problems and really moved economics forward um, by a giant leap. And uh, so the socialist economists... Uh, use the term Austrian School of Economics as a derogatory term. Oh. Yeah. And so, but we, we embrace that, you know, and uh, so it's not economics about Austria. It's just that the original economists were Austrian. Now it, it's uh, very big in the United States, and it's uh, very big and growing. I'd like to say that uh, the Austrian school is the oldest living school of economics it's the fastest growing school of economics, and yet it's still the smallest school of economics. And it's based all on logic, deduction, and common sense. Okay. Uh, it's not based on statistics and mathematical modeling the way mainstream economics approaches things. It's a very well-grounded school of thought uh, based in common sense. That's what most people outside the non-Austrian economists, people who just read Austrian economics, they think it's just good old-fashioned common sense. Uh, but it is; it does have a scientific method and a scientific approach um, where you use rigorous uh, logic and deductions to come about uh, with economic laws that you can then uh, easily apply to 
uh, anything out there from balancing the budget to the minimum wage law. Yeah, and that's exactly what I want to do in the course of this interview is is talk about the basic laws from the Austrian School of Economics and then bring those onto those bigger issues as we go through. And we'll do that in a little bit. But you, you make the same point that uh, Dr. Walter Williams made when I had him on. He's an economics professor and former head of George Mason uh, School in D.C. And what he was saying was he teaches real economics, and it's not so much math. So before we take a break, can you tell me how math screws up uh, economic understanding? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. Uh, but with math and statistics, you can come about, you can come up with just about anything, basically. And okay. so, you know, in mainstream economics, they did statistical studies and found out that increasing the minimum wage actually increased employment. And uh, that that's was, insane. Yeah, I know <laughs> it is. But, you know, w- w- you can twist, you can twist everything if you, if you, if you're not bound by the laws of logic and economics, supply and demand, uh, then anything is anything is possible. Anything, any outrageous thing, uh, basically can be justified. And uh, you know, you can find a few numbers uh, that will provide a justification for for just about everything. And so Austrians are kind of locked down. We 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 can't venture beyond uh, the laws of economics. And so. We have our limitations as well. Um, we can't tell you, you know, the magnitude of changes or the timing of the business cycle, uh, things of that nature. So, and I, I feel very comfortable, you know, having being locked into uh, this very rigorous system. And by the way, Walter Williams is an excellent economist. He doesn't call himself an Austrian, but he's very, I would say, comfortable with. Uh, Austrian economics, because George Mason, where he was the chairman for many years, um, is uh, one of those places that accepts Austrian economics as part of its uh, part of its teaching, and, and that's one of the very few schools uh, that actually have Austrian economists on its faculty. Oh, interesting. Uh, are there? We have to take a break. <laughs> when we come back, I want to find out if there are government agencies that, that work at all on Austrian economics. We'll find out who von Mises is and just a ton more things to do. Uh, I'm going to have to have you back. <laughs> we're, just, we're only going to scratch the surface today. So my guest is Mark Thornton, who's a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He's got a ton of really great articles on the website, too, particularly, I think, the most recent one. Here's an easy way to add some market competition back into healthcare, which I was reading last night as well. We'll be right back in just a little bit on 1330 WEBY. But it can buy me a bullet. It can buy me a Yeti one ten. I stand with some silver bullets. Yeah, I know what they say. Money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so. But it can buy me a boat. <laughs> You know, I was thinking to myself, how is A-Dog going to get economic bumper music? And he came through. It just never fails. That's A-Dog, the world's greatest producer, Mark, who's uh, applying us with things like that. Yeah. Who says money can't buy happiness? So why, if that were the case, why would people try so hard to make money? So, uh, question, sir. Who was Ludwig von Mises? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the namesake of the Institute. Uh, he was born in the ni- late 19th century in Austria. And he was from a noble family, and he went to the University of Vienna, uh, got his doctorate in economics, and uh, he was a socialist, um, as what we would call at the undergraduate level. But he studied 
um, under the great um, early Austrian economist, and he completely switched his mind away from socialism and uh, became a pro-capitalist, free market-oriented person. Uh, he taught a private seminar at the University of Vienna. Uh, he was the chief economist of the Chamber of Commerce uh, in Austria, which was kind of like a branch of government over there. Hmm. And so a very important player, um, his biographer, uh, Guido Holzman, it's a magnificent uh, biography. It's called The Last, uh, the, the Last Night, K-N-I-G-H-T, right. of Liberalism. And, you know, here in the United States, liberalism means progressivism and the Democratic Party. But the rest of the world, when you say liberal or liberalism, you're talking about basically somebody who supports the free market and, uh, you know, and is liberal overall in general. And so, you know, he was an important player. Um, he uh, fled to uh, – Switzerland, when the Nazis invaded uh, Vienna, uh, and the Nazis sent a, a special task force of the SS to capture Mises, and he was already gone, so they took all of his papers and his books and everything yeah. that he owned. Um, and uh, Mises, meanwhile, went from Switzerland to the United States um, and taught at New York University, uh, and really rewrote the rules of economics over the course of his lifetime and made incredible contributions. He was the first one to recognize that socialism as an economic system was impossible. Uh, he was the first person to come up with an economic theory of the business cycle. Uh, he rewrote the methodology of how economists go about uh, at least Austrian economists, how we go about doing economics. Uh, and so very, very uh, important person. And with the downfall of the Soviet Union, uh, we found, or they found, um, Mises's original pre-World War II papers. Apparently the, the Nazis took him to a uh, SS uh, special warehouse to study his papers, hoping that they could find a cure for socialism. <laughs> the Nazis and, were socialists, though, and that's one of the great misconceptions, as we keep hearing about the right-wing dictatorship Nazis. They were socialists, weren't they? Yes, the nationalist socialist. So they were nationalists, they were pro-German, and they were socialists, they were pro-government in the economy, and of course, uh, they were, you know, had complete control over the German economy. Um, and when the Soviet Union invaded Germany, uh, they took Mises's papers that the Nazis had and brought them back to a uh, a spy warehouse in uh, near Moscow. Right. And so when the Soviet Union broke down, uh, academic researchers were able to find Mises's papers, and they were very surprised. Uh, but the Russians also wanted to find uh, the secrets to solving the problems of socialism uh, that Mises first identified in 1920. Shortly after the Russian Revolution. So that gives you a very clear, uh, distinct understanding of Mises as a very, very important academic uh, person in Europe uh, prior to World War II, and, uh, and the fact that he had to flee uh, from the socialist and that the socialist thought that he was so important that they uh, brought his papers, took his papers, 
uh, studied them, hoping that they'd find some missing link uh, that Mises was hiding uh, in in his critique of socialism. See, this is fascinating. So you have the Nazis, who are national socialists, going after his papers. You have the Russians, who are the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and they're both trying to find, trying to make something work that Mises already said was impossible to work. What were they looking for? Well, Mises said that uh, socialism was impossible because you need prices to allocate resources and goods and services. Okay. And Mises, in his book, said that the reason uh, you can't have rational prices in socialism is because you don't have private property. Uh, and so there is no real cure uh, for socialism. And indeed, what the Russians ended up doing is they had an economy after the Russian Revolution with no wage rates, no prices, uh, no real money, no real banking, uh, no real private property. Um, and so as their economy quickly uh, imploded, mm-hmm. they were forced to adopt wage rates, prices, physical money, uh, interest rates. It, it, these were all government choices, and, and so they weren't. Uh, rational. It wasn't a rational system, but it was a workable system. Uh, but it just couldn't uh, grow, basically, and it couldn't uh, develop new technologies. Um, you know, in the in the sense of what the economy needs. I mean, you can create any technology that you want if you put enough resources into it. Uh, but they couldn't, uh, you know, do what was necessary, and so. The people of the Soviet Union were perennially uh, hungry, uh, perennially doing without, uh, or they'd have to resort to the black market. Uh, And so as the years went on, the stagnation went on. Uh, They had to increasingly rely on exploiting uh, resources, uh, stealing resources, uh, and making its population basically do without. And without the support of the United States, uh, uh, you know, over the years, uh, including, you know, gr- the subsidized grain sales to the Soviet Union from the United States, uh, massive subsidies to the Soviet Union during World War II, that regime would have totally collapsed had it not been for uh, subsidies from the United States to keep the Soviet Union uh, in the war, and so they were a relatively weak um, economy, mm. and we we didn't know that the CIA didn't know that because the Soviet Union could just claim that their GDP was increasing because the government was setting all the prices and wages. They could always alter the GDP numbers, and that's another thing that Austrians have been able to exploit is that GDP is something that is easily manipulated. Yeah. I I don't understand those numbers. I don't know what they mean or or what's going on with them. That's why the fact that you're not doing as much math makes it it great. Let me um, sort of bring this up to present day if we can. Why are we rushing headlong into such a socialist system? Why is Bernie Sanders so popular? So if you can contrast the socialism of Bernie Sanders with the capitalism of Donald Trump, let's kind of bring this up to present day. Well, you know, the good sign... The good thing is that both Bernie Sanders 
and Donald Trump are clearly outsiders. Bernie mm. Sanders isn't even inside the Democratic Party. He's an independent and a socialist. Uh, Donald Trump isn't really in the Republican Party either. He was a Democrat uh, in the past, and he supported many, many Democratic politicians. But he's clearly an outsider. He, he doesn't fit uh, the Republican Party. The Republican Party would <laughs> really, uh, but Donald Trump. Uh, but the people, and, and this gets back to my original point, the people in the United States are, have sat up and taken notice that Washington, D.C. is really uh, having a negative effect on ordinary Americans. And so, you know, the ideology of the people has changed, and they're looking for change as well. And so they're turning about and, uh, you know, casting aside the insiders like Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, and they're going for the outsiders. So they don't know uh, what the answer is yet, uh, but they are clearly looking for a substantive change. And I think Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, um, you know, represent that alternative. And so now we have to focus uh, our efforts mm -hmm. at educating uh, the people that, yes, we do want change, but we want change in the direction of a greatly reduced government, uh, greatly uh, reducing the amount of intervention that the government is doing, taxes, inflation, all of those things that the government is messing up. So we have to take that um, opportunity uh, to take the sentiment for change and move that um, through the study of economics uh, towards a free market direction so we get solutions rather than just simply uh, more problems. Interesting. We have to take a break, and I never do ask which, if there are any government agencies you know, that are actually using Austrian economics. I would tend to think not, but you can tell me that. We're going to get into actual uh, the laws of supply and demand, what exactly is inflation, all that kind of stuff, and then we can apply those to more modern uh, problems and things. Anyway, 1330 WEBY, Northwest Florida's Talk Radio. Greg Penglis here with my special guest, Mark Thornton of the Mises Institute. We'll be right back. Song. <laughs> We're having a good time here. That's A-Doc. He's, he's great. He's wonderful about these things. 838 in the morning here. Uh, I got a quote from your website about socialism. Uh, it says, socialism permits no private property or exchange in capital goods and thus no way for resources to find their most highly valued use. Socialism, Mises predicted, would result in utter chaos and the end of civilization. And that's pretty much happened to, to Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, right? Oh, yeah. And as I said before, the the first couple of years of the Soviet Union, they tried true socialism, and it was a miserable failure. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, starvation, untold uh, numbers of people dying uh, for lack of food and fuel. Uh, it's a you know, it's it, the the type of socialism that we have today uh, is limited socialism. So France, okay. Germany. The United States, all these other countries, they have lots of private property. They have private companies. They have money. They have market-determined prices. 
that are regulated in some cases, intervened in others, subsidized in others, taxed in, on others. Uh, so it's limited socialism that is pervasive around the world. But true socialism, Mises said, is impossible and would result in the utter ruin and chaos of civilization. And so they've had to back off of that. Okay. And so they basically uh, are right. The socialists are riding the capitalist horse uh, that does all the work, um, you know, and gets the job done. Uh, but socialism doesn't really provide uh, any social benefits, really. It, it, uh, it's, it's a way of paying off uh, part of the population with the productivity of the productive classes, uh, labor, capitalism, capitalists, entrepreneurs. Those are the people who get things done, who make products and uh, create incomes. Uh, and socialism basically just feeds off of the productive classes. Yeah, interesting. That's why I brought up uh, Bernie Sanders and why we're, you know, there are people in this country that want to rush headlong to that system that has already been proven not to work. So let's get to some, some basics here. The, the laws of supply and demand. We hear supply and demand all the time. What does that mean exactly, and what, what were the revelations of, of the Austrian uh, School of Economics on that? Well, the law of demand is that we will purchase more of a product as the price goes lower. Right. And the law of supply is that more will be produced the higher it goes. And so if you take the, the law of supply and the law of demand, what you find is a system that creates prices and regulates prices so that no matter what happens in the economy, um, the adjustment process will take place in markets based on the law of supply and demand. You'll get market-determined prices and you'll get uh, conservation of resources and that goods will be going to their most highly valued uses. And so we, really we all participate in markets, whether it's in the labor market where you can have various types of jobs uh, or in the product market where you can purchase or produce various types of goods. And we all have a comparative advantage on the supply side so that we tend to migrate in the direction of the production of goods that we're best suited to produce. And then we all have our personal preferences in terms of goods, and so we migrate in the direction of what we like and what does it cost. And so this is a system that doesn't have to be regulated at all. Hmm. It doesn't have to have direction from some higher source. It's an independent, uh, comprehensive system that we all, and we get to the point where our resources are directed towards the production of goods that produce the most value, and at the same time, we are all encouraged, encouraged to conserve um, on, on what we consume so that we end up with the highest possible standard of living. So it's, it's one in which, uh, through private property, we have a built-in incentive to uh, serve our fellow man and woman uh, out there in the economy to make each other as best off as possible. So it's really a remarkable system. It's one that humanity uh, gyrates towards uh, independently, hmm. but we only discovered its workings 
in the early part, the complete system, in the early part of the 20th century. And when people don't understand how the system works, they tend to gravitate towards the best propaganda story out there. And so Bernie Sanders is saying, you know, everybody should have this and everybody should have that. It's all free. He's, all, he's <laughs> only talking about the, the good side of things. He's not talking about, well, how is this going to be produced? Okay. And is it really necessary that everybody get a graduate degree um, in college? And so he's, he's, you know, talking about the presence he wishes to provide, but he's not talking about how it can be provided, uh, because then you start asking questions, well, you know, is that really possible, or is that really logical, or is that really necessary? Those are the common questions. So we all need to understand the basics of economics and of capitalism, or else we are in danger of killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah. And that's where, we're, that's where we're at right now, is that a lot of Americans um, don't understand you know, where the prosperity is coming from. So they think it's something that's always going to exist. And, you know, this generation is the first generation in the history of the United States where it's not better off than the previous generation. And so we are in the process of killing the geese that lays the golden eggs because we don't understand where our prosperity comes from. And it comes from limited government. It comes from private property. It comes from capitalism. Uh, and it's the entrepreneur that solves our problems and provides us with jobs and, you know, does all these great things. And, and we're discouraging entrepreneurs in the economy uh, with a $20 trillion national debt, uh, a system of irrational regulations that are unnecessary in the first place. Uh, and, of course, also, we are, we've been off the gold standard since 1971. Mm-hmm. We've been on a fiat paper system which is creating havoc uh, in the American economy and in our capital structure. Wow. <laughs> Where do we go from here? There's too much. Uh, you, <laughs> Sorry. No, I appreciate it. This is why I say I need you back for, for more, more, more chats on this. Do you, do you think that the government schools who want to have compliant government citizens are doing a huge disservice by not teaching economics and promoting uh, sort of a government socialist planned economy will be the best of possible worlds where we, they can control the climate and, uh, you know, control which, who, who gets what job and, you know, permanent education. How does, how does education fit into the, the misunderstanding? Well, you know, the United States uh, became the most literate nation in the world before public education, before compulsory education. We were the most literate people ever. Huh. And so we certainly don't need public education, but the government does. The government uses public education, and they, you know, they teach us math and science, uh, but they also teach uh, American history and, and economics and social studies, and all of that is geared towards making people compliant yeah. uh, with the government and making them uh, unable to critically think about things. Uh, by the time you graduate from the public education system, uh, basically you have points of view um, that are compliant with the government. And then you go to college and you take economics, and you know, 99 people out of 100 
uh, you know, that people ask me, what do I do for a living? Well, you know, at a party or something. And I say, <laughs> well, I'm an economist. And they, they'll say that was the course I hated the most. Yeah. And then typically you don't, you don't say something like that to somebody you just met. But 99 out of 100 people will tell, tell me that. And, you know, mainstream Keynesian economics, which they teach in college, uh, is pro-government uh, economics. You need the government to run deficits. You need the government uh, to manage the business cycle. You need government to, to uh, manage markets and to regulate markets and to subsidize public education and farming and, you know, a list of things. Um, they're not taught scientific Austrian economics. They're taught government economics where uh, there's, you know, market failures throughout the economy. Um, there's an irrational business cycle where business people, um, you know, become overly optimistic and then they become overly pessimistic. And so if the government's not there, the economy will spin out of control. How do they get this ridiculous belief? Uh, this is, you know, we're going to take a break in a second, a second here, so we should probably come back and talk about this. But it's like government seeks control, yet they have no intellectual basis for doing it, yet they do it anyway. They, they have a school system that creates you know, generations of people that believe in this kind of control, and yet they always screw it up, and this, this system kind of perpetuates. So let's, let's find, I wanted to see what insights you have as to why governments insist on controlling things that they can't control. We'll be right back in just a little bit, 849, 1330 WEBY. Back in with a very special guest, Mark Thornton of the Mises Institute. And the question I, I posed right before the break, why do governments insist on controlling things that they can't control? Do you have any insight on that? Well, you know, government is a system where they take a certain percentage of our resources uh, and then they produce a negative net benefit. And so that's, that's a losing proposition. So democracy and government has to come up with ways to placate the majority of the citizens in order to keep their cush jobs. And so government takes in a bunch of our money. Uh, they provide cush jobs for you know, a bunch of people, and they provide benefits, they provide welfare, they provide free education, they provide, you know, all of these services to people, they provide people with Social Security, and, but, you know, at everything that they do um, is, is a net loss to society. So basically, when we educate someone in a public school, it costs twice as much uh, adjusted for quality of education than if we did educated that same person in a private school uh, based on them making their own payment for that service. And so, you know, it's a process where they have to buy off an increasing number of people, uh, whether that's in the defense industry, whether that's in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, whether that's providing uh, subsidies in agriculture. And so it's basically a payoff system where you have to pay off uh, at least 50% of the voters right. in order for them to keep their jobs. And so that's why they want to be in a position of control. You know, they want to control at least the commanding heights, uh, things like transportation and communication. 
Um, and all of the things that Karl Marx laid out in the Communist Manifesto, uh, public schools, central bank, you know, if you get if you get a copy of the Communist Manifesto, there's the 10-point program of the Communist Revolution, which lays the groundwork for, you know, complete, uh, in Karl Marx's uh, system for complete communism. But you look at the list of 10 things and you say, wow, the United States has all 10 of those things, and we've had them for over a century now. Yeah. And so that's, that's where they're going is that, uh, that need to control, whether it's ideological or whether it's just basic, um, you know, I want to keep my job, uh, my cush job working for government. Uh, you know, we need that kind of control. We need that kind of authority, and we need to instill the ideology of the government. Interesting. If we had a purely Austrian economic system, how much government would we, would we have and what would they do? I know that's a huge question, and we only have a few minutes left, but what, what should government do to, to provide the, the, the best allocation of resources and all these things? And we'll get into some other stuff in a little bit. Well, we're, we're jumping off our scientific course here, and we're that's getting okay. into the, rule, the, the realm of uh, advocacy. But basically, uh, you know, we had, the, under the Articles of Confederation, we, have all, we had almost no federal government. Um, you know, very, very limited uh, government. Everything was on uh, a time scale. Uh, but basically, um, Austrians, I think, would agree uh, that government uh, should make sure uh, that property rights um, are defended, uh, that disputes are adjudicated, and that the nation itself is defended uh, from foreign invasion. And so that would call forth for things like uh, police security services, uh, court systems, uh, and national defense. And, you know, even currently, all three of those areas are things in which government and the private sector um, are directly involved. We spend money on local police, uh, we, but we also spend money defending ourselves with security firms and, and things of that nature, yeah. alarm systems, you know, and so forth. And then with uh, adjudicating disputes, yes, we have courts at the local, state, county, federal level. Yeah, we have to interrupt you because we only have about 30 seconds left, so I want to make sure that uh, you say the last thing that you want to say. But uh, we have to have you back. I mean, this is just, we're just getting started in this chat. I can certainly come back. Yeah. Okay, anything else you want to add just in the, in the little bit of time we have left? Well, I would encourage everybody to go today, M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G, take a look, maybe subscribe, uh, but I think you'll find it probably was the best thing you're going to do for yourself today. Wow. And there's so much we want to talk about, so many things I didn't get to. I want to find out what inflation is. I want to find out how wealth is created. And I'll, you're like a walking economics course, and this is why I want to get you back in a little bit. And basically just pick up where we left off, if that's okay, sometime in the future. Absolutely, Greg. Thank Love you. to do it. Oh, thank you, sir, so much. I really yeah, that's how it happened uh, way back then. It was I wasn't really good at my timing in terms of uh, trying to schedule folks. Yeah, I'm still not that good at it when we get an interesting topic. And you never know how long an answer is going to be from a guest, and you don't want to stop them from talking uh, if they're on a roll. So let's get back to present day. Action Radio.
dangerously cool. So I kept talking about having him back, and I actually did have him back about a month or so later. Um, I recommend, because these are heavy topics, don't listen to them all at the same time. You know, listen to the show in sections, because it is complex. There's a lot of information. You want know, to think about it. You may want to go back and listen a couple of times to the first uh, hour, or the first, you know, Mark Thorne, because there are more so much. So I'm going to do take a little jazz break now and play a little, a little Dixieland music here. And uh, this will get you kind of in the mood for the next part. So we're going to, play, we're going to run a little bit over time, but that's okay. Um, because uh, you know, <laughs> because I want to get this information both because I'm going to send this these both these podcasts to uh, Mark Thornton, and uh, he should have some fun with that. Ah, here's what I'm looking for. So play a little jazz, and I'll start to part two of my discussion with uh, Mark Thornton of the Mises Institute. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, that's a nice break. And so it's now time to get back to our serious economics topic. So the first interview uh, on WBY with Mark Thornton was on uh, July 10th of 2017. The second one was actually fairly soon after that, August 28th. And also of 2017, obviously, you know, so from uh, July 10th to August 28th, you know, about six weeks. And so he came back again for another exciting chat covering hopefully all the things. I don't know. I haven't heard this one for I haven't heard any of these, you know, since I played them last on the show, um, but covering all the things that we wanted to uh, get the first hour, but obviously didn't get to because we had so much else to talk to. So I'll run about 15 minutes over time, but it's worth it for this interview. And so let me get started and I'll talk to you uh, when we're done. Oh boy. Sometimes we get lucky. This is one of those times. I want to introduce one of my favorite uh, guests of all time. This is Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute. He's a senior fellow there. He knows economics and explains it the way nobody else can. What's that? We got extra music? Oh, we got extra theme. That's okay. Anyway, let me bring him on right now. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, Greg. Great, great to be with you. Well, thanks so much for joining me again. So I promised you I was going to get a podcast, and we should have those fairly soon of your first one. I want to kind of group them together in a series once I uh, get uh, get a few more uh, chats from you. But it's really great to have you on, um, especially at this time. If you can tell me a bit about Mises, then I want to get into um, what's happening, the economic in- impact of, uh, of Hurricane Harvey. But if you can tell folks what, a little bit about the Mises Institute first. Well, the Mises Institute is located in Auburn, Alabama, and we are a nonprofit economic education foundation. And uh, we, you know, try to address the entire population uh, with college students, graduate students, professors, and just the regular out there population to get them more informed about economics and about the economy and about what's really going on in the economic system. And uh, so... I encourage all of your listeners to go to our website, M-I-S-E-S.org, and check it out. It's the world's largest economic webpage, and it's all written for the general population. It's not a bunch of equations like most economists uh, are concerned about. You know, it's funny you should say that because when I had Dr. Walter Williams on, he said the same thing. There's too much math. People don't know what they're doing. They're not analyzing the culture, the, you know, all the effects of things that are going on in society. There's more to economics than just formulas. Absolutely, and Walter Williams is an excellent economist, uh, maybe one of the best out there, and certainly one of the more influential uh, economists as well. Yeah, yeah. He was a great interview. He'd only stay 20 minutes, though, but uh, this is why I'm so glad to have you. Listen, you explain things the way nobody else does, and that's why I like to have you on. So let's talk about um, Harvey for a bit, because we're hearing that uh, oil supplies are interrupted. There's a lot of refining capacity that's going to be down. The markets are up. They're, they're buying more. What does all this mean? So what, is, what, is Harvey, what is Harvey doing to our economy? Well, you know, with things like uh, Hurricane Harvey or Katrina, you know, things like that, you'll inevitably see uh, once the dust settles, you'll see economists coming up and saying, well, what a great thing this is because it's going to create all these new jobs. <laughs> yeah, great uh, thing, right. You know, <laughs> we, we look at it entirely different. We look at something like um, Hurricane Harvey as destruction. You're, yeah. you're destroying wealth. You're destroying value. Obviously, tens of thousands of people are being adversely affected, putting, put in harm's way. And it's just an awful deplorable uh, situation there, and uh, you know, it's um, it's really beyond the pale. But it's not a gain to the economy; it doesn't create jobs; it destroys. 
and uh, we should all be concerned about those things. Yeah, and this is the thing, too. They're talking about, hey, the markets are up, futures are up, contracts are up. This is great. This is going to help people. What are they talking about with all that? Well, obviously, um, you know, a hurricane hitting Houston, uh, Houston um, is one of the world's major oil refinery sites, uh, and I think one-third of all oil in the United States is processed uh, in the Houston area. And so naturally, this is going to rattle markets. Uh, right. market re- the market responds to uh, situations such as this where there's very much a heightened risk, where there's a definite possibility where you're cutting off supply. And uh, under those circumstances, you're going to see markets move higher right. uh, for oil. Uh, and actually, it's the the market for gasoline is is moving much higher and the but the market for unprocessed oil is uh is actually not moving as much so you know the markets respond uh to to everything uh everything in the entire economy is relevant in uh national prices for oil gas cotton bananas everything and so naturally something like this that is uh directly impacting uh, the oil processing uh, and refining uh, industry is going to have uh, significant effects uh, on markets. Well, it's interesting because um, there's a lag time. I mean, the oil that we have now and the petroleum and the gasoline, this was refined a while ago. Do you know about what the lag time is between when it's refined, when it gets here, and how much supply, how much time it takes before the we run out of gasoline that was produced before the hurricane? No, I don't. Uh, okay. I do know that uh, we had a pipeline, a gasoline pipeline here in Alabama, uh-huh. unexpectedly explode uh, back about a year and a half ago, hmm. and we were without gasoline in, in a matter of uh, like 36 hours. Wow! So it, it, you know, the the amount of products on the shelf or in the gas station tank is relatively small relative to the demand we get if you notice in your local economy you'll be getting daily uh, deliveries of things like gasoline bread and so the amount even though the, the like the grocery stores look like they're super packed with everything uh, that can quickly uh, those inventories at the local level can quickly uh, dry up very fast uh, especially if there's a rush uh, you know, once everybody knows about the problem, they, they go to the stores and they right. buy up this, whatever they can. And so you have an a increased demand and a restricted supply. And, and so it, yeah. you, you end up with nothing. And, and so that's why we always need to be prepared. Uh, you, should, you should be prepared as if there is going to be a natural disaster uh, in, the, in the near-term future. And uh, make sure you're prepared like a Boy Scout would be. Yeah. We hear about futures contracts, and uh, I know a little bit about this, but I think a lot of people aren't, aren't as familiar, where they're, they're buying gasoline like six months in advance trying to guess the price of it, and an event like this changed that. Can, do you know about options and commodities and things that you could explain you know, to folks how this works a little bit? Well, I'm not an expert in this area. You I, don't have to be. I'm just, I've, just general I've, knowledge. Uh, I've uh, participated in those markets a little bit myself, but basically... Uh, there are contractual re, uh, arrangements. So, you know, I can go to the gas station and buy gasoline directly mm-hmm. and put it in my car, but the gas station itself can 
buy or the chain of gas stations can go out and buy uh, you know so many millions of gallons uh, for October right. or November or December and very often they want to hedge their bets and so they might buy some of their uh, inventory in the futures market at a certain price and they might buy the rest of their inventory on the spot market so that they you know they have some knowledge in advance mm -hmm of what their uh, wholesale price is going to be so you can buy it out in the future or you can buy it on the spot market and everybody of course all suppliers and and all retail are always looking to uh, get the best price uh, that's one of the most important things once you've committed uh, to buying inventory uh, you don't know where the market's going to go mm. it could go higher it could go lower uh, and uh, the entrepreneur is uh, left holding the proverbial bag and so that's a very important market where entrepreneurs can try to reduce their exposure to market changes in prices yeah i was thinking about someone that might have bought uh, futures contract six months ago, knowing nothing that this would have happened. So they, they have their August price of, of however many millions of gallons they bought. They're still, because they bought it in a futures contract, the, the, the supplier still has to honor that at the price that they contracted for six months ago, right? That's correct, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the beauty of the futures market is it's a contractual way right. of trying to hedge your uh, exposure to market risks. Okay. So you may pay a little bit more than you think you might, uh, but then when something like this happens, it actually works in your favor. That's correct. Yeah, interesting. Um, Keystone Pipeline and infrastructure. You know, the President Obama didn't want anything to do with Keystone, but I'm thinking if we'd had this years ago on other pipelines, would they have been able to maybe move the refining to other areas of the country more quickly? Um, do you know about infrastructure stuff on this? Yes, and, you know, th th that is a problem uh, in our oil industry is that the government uh, has interventions uh, in our markets with respect to refining. Mm -hmm. We haven't added any um, new refineries uh, in the United States in decades. Oh, really? Be because of uh, federal regulations. Now, what they do do, of course, is they take existing refineries and they try to boost the capacity at those sites. Huh. Uh, but we haven't been able to add any new sites because of these, the regulations. And, of, of course, nobody wants an oil refinery uh, in their backyard. So it's, it's a very difficult situation, and uh, it creates bottlenecks uh, in the market for oil and oil-refined products. Um, and the Keystone Pipeline was an attempt to integrate the new oil shale uh, or shale oil mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, other new sources of energy in northern part of the country to integrate that in with Houston and Louisiana refinery um, industries. Yeah. I would think that with the newer technology, that wouldn't be such a big problem to have the newer refineries compared to, say, building one 50 years ago. Um, but people still don't want them. Is, it, you know, is there any reason to, to think that refineries are, are tossing off a lot of pollution? I mean, they have, to, they have standards they have to meet. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the oil refineries are increasingly efficient and therefore increasingly um, environmentally friendly. Yeah. Um, you know, refineries um, have always wanted to, you know, not pollute. They'd rather not pollute and be able to use 100% of that raw uh, oil into all the various products. 
Uh, that was true of the coal industry as well. We see that today hmm. in China where they use a lot of coal, and, uh, of course, they have a lot of environmental pollution, but the uh, people who are burning coal want to do it increasingly more efficiently to get more uh, more energy out of every ton of coal. And as a consequence, uh, the pollution levels uh, have improved or c- continue to improve, uh, you know, in China, just as we saw that happened 100 to 150 years ago in Pennsylvania. Interesting. Um, we're going to take a little break, but before we go, I want to know if there's anything else you want to add to uh, you know, our, our discussion here of energy and the economy uh, with regard to the hurricane or anything else that's happening. Well, you know, my hearts and prayers um, are mostly, I'm, you know, I'm mostly concerned about the human yeah. element right now. And uh, I've got friends, I've got relatives in the affected area. Oh, wow, I'm sorry. And it, it, so it's, uh, I think we need to be concerned about that, do what we can, uh, comfort them if possible. Um, the market for oil and all that stuff will work itself out. Mm-hmm. And uh, those, the, those refining resources were supposedly um, able to, uh, you know, withstand uh, hurricane weather. Hmm. And so I think once we get the, the people problem solved and get the people back to work, I think we'll be okay with respect to, uh, you know, energy, oil, and gas. Yeah, I don't want folks to think that we're not covering that. I talked about that the first couple of hours. We were sure. going over various things. But I wanted to, because you're, you know, economics is what you know. I wanted to come <laughs> deal with those issues. Yeah. And this is why it's just very, you know, fortuitous we had you on at this time. When we come back, I want to get into this whole central banker thing that nobody's talking about that I think is going to be really interesting. And if you have questions out there, please ask us here. You've got a rare chance to talk to someone that really knows economics. So all those questions you've never been able to uh, understand or explain or things you hear in the news, now's the time to call us at 6 We have Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute, and we'll be right back. any economic themes? <laughs> you never know what Adar was going to bring us, so it's just kind of interesting. i got uh, Mark Thornton, uh, who I'm going to bring back on right now. Um, Mark Thornton is a is, uh, senior fellow at the Mises Institute, and the reason I brought him on is the question I'm, I'm about to ask right now. So I'm always interested in what the news is talking about, but I'm even more interested in what the news is not talking about. And what they're not talking about is this big um, convention of central bankers that's going on in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They're hiding in this mountain retreat, which makes me suspicious. Uh, Bloomberg uh, Investment Report has talked about what the, you know, the fact that this convention is going on, but they're not saying what they're doing. And so I want to see if we can uh, get into this a little bit, because the big conference, the big problem they're having is that inflation isn't high enough. Now, that to me isn't a problem. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't see inflation as a good thing, but this is what they're discussing here. And nobody's talking about this. No one's, you know, no one's getting up in arms. They're not going on the street, and, and, and no one's interviewing people saying, well, the central bankers think that inflation isn't high enough. What do you think? So let's, let's start at the beginning, and then we'll see if we can work this way through this. So what exactly, Mark, is a central bank and a central banker? Well, the central bank is the federal government's uh, regulatory body uh, that oversees banks. Now, of course, we have lots of bank regulators at the federal level and at state level, um, 
but the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. which was organized in 1913 by Congress, uh, is the overarching controller of the money supply and also interest rates. They control the interest rates that banks charge other banks for short-term deposits, and that interest rate then influences all of the other interest rates uh, on things like home mortgages, uh, auto loans, business loans. All of that is indirectly controlled by the Federal Reserve by its power to control the interest rate that banks charge other banks for short-term deposits. Oh, excuse me, short-term loans. That would be the prime rate they're talking about? No, the the prime rate is uh, that's directly influenced by what's called the federal uh, funds rate. Oh, okay. That's what I forgot. And uh, and so, you know, the amount of – see, banks have to hold a certain amount of deposits Mm -hmm. uh, in the bank, and – so if, they, if they're not at that level, then they have to borrow money from other banks in terms of short-term loans. But, of course, the purpose of banks, as you suggest, mm-hmm. is to finance uh, business inventory and expansion, construction, uh, so on and so forth. And that's the prime rate, the, the rate that banks okay. charge their very best uh, customers in terms of uh, the risk that they have on their loans. Yeah. Now we have kind of a, a, a checkered history of central banks in this country. They've they've been formed. They've been gotten rid of. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history of that, and then we'll get into why we actually have one of these things? Sure. Um, so there's been various phases of central banks in the United States. There was the first uh, Bank of the United States, uh, which you know it ended up creating uh, inflation and creating business cycles, and so politically it was done away with in the early 19th century. Okay. And then there was the second bank of the United States, which did, basically did the same thing and was done away with uh, by Andrew Jackson in the 1830s. And then once we hit the American Civil War, the federal government, uh, of course, under Republican northern control, uh, passed Uh, the National Banking Acts in the 1860s, and the the National Banking Acts controlled banking in a regulatory fashion from the 1860s until 1913, and it was uh, actually a very destabilizing system. Uh, Of course, we were on the gold standard throughout this entire period, but uh, in from 1860 to 1913, there was a lot of banking panics because of the regulatory um, uh, interventions in the banking system, and that's when we uh, that's when we uh, they passed the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, creating this uh, central bank, much like the Bank of England or the European Central Bank in modern times, the Bank of Japan, so forth. Uh, all major nations now have central banks, and uh, those central banks have become a key influencer of economies across the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they're still destabilizing. I mean, we already we had the Federal Reserve system in 1913. Uh, we still had the Great Depression, though. So right, yeah. There, there's no there's no guarantee that uh, central banks are going to properly regulate these markets. And as a matter of fact, experience uh, shows that they are 
almost inevitably going to create economic havoc uh, in the economy eventually. That's why I raised the question, because I, I, I don't know the exact history, but I've known this for, for a while, that we've tried this a couple of times. It's been gotten rid of. They say they're going to come in and uh, you know, get rid of the business cycles and the boom and the bust times, and they'll keep everything nice and smooth and, and developing you know, at a steady rate, and growth will be steady, and everybody's going to be happy. And they end up doing just the opposite. So I have to wonder if this isn't by design that the governments want to create these central banks simply because they cause these boom and bust cycles, and, and who might be benefiting from that? Right. The uh, central bankers always want you to think that markets can't possibly control money and banking, and that if not for them, you know, the world would crumble um, as we speak. Uh, the truth is, is that they're in the business basically of printing up money okay. and causing price inflation in the economy, it's uh, you can well imagine. Just put yourself in the position of a central banker who's able to print up as much money as they want. Well, that's a position that everybody would like to have. It's you know, it's called counterfeiting, counter though. If anybody else does it, yeah, <laughs> it's a great counterfeiting scheme of yeah, you know, of all time. And, and basically, they uh, successfully pretend that they're not the source of the problem, but they're the source of the cure. Uh, of the problem and uh, that we can't possibly do without them. Yeah. But the truth is, is that the, le the less they do, the less control over interest rates they have, the less money printing that they do, the better off everybody else is in the economy. Yeah, I, I remember there was, there was a couple of instances where we had very quick um, recessions that were very, very, uh, I mean, there were strong recessions, and the government did nothing, I think, during the, the Coolidge um, Harding days, they, they did very little. The, the economy recovered in a couple of years and things were fine. But then when Roosevelt came along with his depression, um, they actually made it far worse. And all the policies they did extended it for 12 years, whereas if the government had done nothing, it might have been over in like two or three. That's correct. In 1920, uh, the U.S. went into a recession. It was a kind of a panic situation. Uh, and Harding didn't do anything. Uh, he uh, actually... Uh, had the Federal Reserve raise interest rates, uh, and they cut government spending and balanced the budget. What a concept. <laughs> one year. Yeah. So it was supposed to be a depression, but we quickly came out of that. The depression of 1920, 1921 mm -hmm. was over and done with. And if you lived in rural areas, or including Pensacola, you might not even really um, you know, feel the impact of that depression before it was already over. Uh, we've had experience in uh, the 1930s during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. uh, we had similar experiences in the United States in the 1970s to 1982, uh, and then in Japan since 1990, and in the United States since 2008, when the government and the central bank actively try to uh, shut down an economic depression, what they end up doing is prolonging it. So you really need um, to, uh, you know, when the economy goes into a depression, it needs to clean out yeah. all of the bad lending, all of the bad loans, all of the bad business ventures and structures, um, and, and turn them over. And, and in the 1930s uh, and in today, uh, the Federal Reserve is fighting uh, 
the economic crisis and they end up prolonging it almost indefinitely yeah. uh, with low interest rates, trying to save existing businesses and existing jobs um, that are not uh, profitable going forward and allowing resources to find out their most valuable uses in the economy. And right now, uh, you know, that's what the Federal Reserve has been up to, fighting this economic crisis. And what they end up doing is just simply prolonging it. Yeah. And my assumption is always that, considering how long we've had central banks, that what they're doing is not an accident, it's by design, and that somebody's going to benefit from it. Uh, and that's why every bank, every person that you mentioned, the Central Bank of Japan, Central Bank of England, Central Bank of, of the European Union, our Federal Reserve, they're all meeting in Jackson Hole. <laughs> So, and my, you know, I, I want to get to the callers, but this, we're going to get to why in just a little bit. Let's get to Brad right now. Brad, Brad, you had a question? Yeah, I'd like uh, the uh, uh, audience to hear about our debt-based economy and how that when they print the money, they never print the money for the interest. Therefore, when the uh, loans are called in or the money finally finds its home, the interest is still out there with no backing, and it's, it's a uh, perpetuating disaster, and that's why the, uh, I believe, like the uh, deficits and all are, are, are out of control because of this. Is that the Keynesian uh, uh, economy where they print the money and the debt is based on, uh, uh, you know, there's never enough money to pay the interest. If they keep, even if they keep printing money, there's never any money to pay the interest. Uh, so speak about the uh, debt-based. Yeah, I wasn't going to get into this now, but it's, it's a good time to do it because we've got the national debt uh, debt ceiling debate coming up and the budgets and interest. And, yeah, Mark, yeah, go well, for Brad, it. That's, <laughs> Brad, that's an excellent question. Yeah. That's the flip side of, of monetary policy is that easy monetary policy and low interest rates allow the government to borrow money at these ridiculously low interest rates. Uh, it keeps their interest expense down. Um, and makes it much easier for them to just borrow money. And, of course, we've been borrowing, on average, about a trillion dollars uh, every year since the economic crisis. And then, of course, we have, you know, trillions uh, of government uh, borrowing before that uh, economic crisis started in 2008. So the federal government has $20 trillion in debt. Uh, they have to pay interest on that. They have to roll over uh, those bonds and notes uh, as they come due. And, of course, with the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates very low, uh, that makes it so much easier to pay off that interest. I think right now we're four or $500 billion uh, in interest payments every year. If we allowed interest rates, and this is the key, if we allowed interest rates to go to market levels, mm -hmm. uh, the interest on the national debt, would be much, much higher, two to three times uh, higher than what it is right now. And so, you know, the reason we have a central bank and the reason they control interest rates is that, so that politicians find it easier uh, to borrow money, to pay the interest. Um, and, of course, as uh, price inflation works its way through the economy, that reduces the real burden uh, of the national debt uh, because they're getting to pay it off with devalued dollars. And so that's the whole system. If you look at the whole system together, uh, that's the reason ultimately why we have uh, a central bank. It's not uh, 
to regulate interest rates. It's not to regulate the money supply and, and all that nonsense. Uh, it's just basically in a very elaborate scheme mm-hmm. uh, so that politicians can spend more uh, than they tax. And uh, that keeps them, in the short run, in favor with uh, most of the population, the people who are uh, working for the government, government contractors, debtors out there in the economy, banks, Wall Street. Uh, those are the primary beneficiaries uh, of this elaborate scheme. Yeah, we got to take a break, and then when we come back, uh, we're going to get to Chuck. So, Chuck, just hang on for a little bit. Um, I want to get into this whole idea of inflation, what it is exactly, and who benefits, and, and how if um, inflation is 3% and we're you know making 1% of our savings, is that 2% transferred to the banks somehow? I mean, how do, how, do, how do these banks make money from us, from inflation? I want to get into that when we come back. 837, Greg Penglis here with Mark Thornton from uh, the Mises Institute at 1330 WEBY. We'll be back. Footloose? <laughs> yeah, I know who's Footloose. Are those uh, bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I want to bring Mark right back on because I want to get right to this question. The, the, my biggest question of the day is, is how does the mechanism work? How do these bankers make money, transfer our wealth by using inflation? I, I can't explain it. I don't understand how it works. Can you help me out, Mark? Sure thing, Greg. Um, well, basically, I mean, it's, it's not all that complicated, okay. but... You know, if the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates very low, they're keeping those interest rates low for the banks themselves because the interest rate that they control is the interest rate that banks charge other banks uh, for short-term loans. And so if they keep that rate low, then it's it's uh, helping the supply side of banks. It's basically... You know, if uh, if we looked at it in a different market, and the federal government controlled the price of flour, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for making bread and stuff, if they if they reduced the price of flour to three cents a ton or mm-hmm. three cents a pound, even, uh, well, if you're in the if you're in the uh, baking industry making cooks uh, cookies and and bread and so forth. Well, that's going to be a. It's going to increase your profit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, if that's essentially what the Federal Reserve is doing is controlling uh, the, the basic of money. input side of of the bank's economy, and so it it uh, it reduces interest rates all over the economy. But the most important beneficiary is the people who get the money first, and that's the banks. Uh, we don't get the money first. Okay. We get the money maybe a year from now, two years from now. It starts circulating. Uh, but by that time, prices of goods and uh, our and services have increased. And so we get the money, but we're paying higher prices. So we don't benefit from that. But the banks who get the money at the very first uh, part of this process and, and then start making additional loans as a result – uh, that's how they are the major beneficiaries of this process. Yeah, I want to go to Chuck, but I still want to find out how they make, uh, why they manipulate inflation. We'll get to that in a little bit. Chuck, thanks for holding on. I appreciate it. Go ahead. Hey, uh, I'm just about out of time, but my 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 question and comment would be: I, I, I used to years ago study this a little bit. Of course, I'm not an economist; I'm a layman. But uh, 
one key element that I had seen was the, uh, of course, the the interest on any of the bonds that are bought is given back to the Treasury, and that's their selling point that we're not making no money on you because we're buying bonds, but whatever that percent interest is, we're actually giving it back to the Treasury to keep the money flowing. There is one other part in this uh, booklet that they, they produce called Modern Money Mechanics that refers to the primary dealers, which are the big, big banks that actually sell bonds and stuff, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, City, uh, Wells Fargo, those type of banks that are uh, the top echelon, uh, maybe even have ownership in the Federal Reserve, that they get 6% on their excess reserves. So I'm thinking, okay, if somebody's got an opportunity to loan money, if you've got excess reserves and you're looking to loan the money, say, and in this market here, to somebody at, you know, you're only going to get, say, 3 or 4% on it, why would you bother to loan it when you can hold on to it and get paid from the Federal Reserve 6% on your excess reserves, which here again goes back to spitting more money into the coffers of the, uh, you know, the, the banks that we're talking about that are taking the wealth away. So I'd like to hear a comment on the uh, the 6% paid on the excess reserves, but that's yeah, never this is really that. technical. You lost me a while ago. So I'm going to let Mark yes. take this one. Well, Go ahead, Mark. Let's break that down, Greg. Um, when the, the way the Federal Reserve controls interest rates is it buys government bonds. Okay. Okay, so it, it, if it buys government bonds, it increases the price of those bonds and reduces the interest rate. And so the Federal Reserve has trillions of dollars in assets right now. Like 4.5 trillion. I remember reading this. They've got as much money as the entire federal budget. Yeah, they, they, they've been buying up government debt like crazy. Uh-huh. Uh, and they've also expanded their asset base into uh, mortgages. And so they have all these assets, which they are, they are earning interest on. And uh, so they have a couple hundred billion dollars in income. And so in terms of spending, uh, they can spend as much money as they want, uh, like lavish uh, symposiums in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. On their, they, their buds, their, their worldwide friends are there, too. What is going on there? Well, they've got money to burn. Oh, Literally, gosh. they've got money to burn. Yeah. And so they, they spend all this money, and yet they still have roughly, I'd say, $100 billion of excess income. And that does go back to the Treasury. The Treasury gets the net income of the Federal Reserve, and that could be positive or negative, but it's always been positive uh, so far. The other thing they're doing, the caller correctly points out, is uh, that uh, banks now have an enormous amount of excess reserves, okay. money that they don't have to hold, uh, money that they could lend out to businesses and customers, but instead, they're leaving those excess reserves, and they're, in effect, lending it to the Federal Reserve uh, because the Federal Reserve is paying, it's not 6%, it's uh, roughly one and one-quarter percent uh, to banks uh, because the Fed, for whatever reason, doesn't want banks lending out all those excess reserves, uh, which is another curious uh, policy of, of, of the Federal Reserve. You know, they they whine about, you know, the economy not being strong enough, yeah. and yet they're putting the brakes on banks from lending out all of their excess reserves. It's, they're acting like a private company in their own 
best interest. This is why I'm worried about them. Why do we need a Federal Reserve if we have a Treasury? Well, that's a good. That's a very good question. I mean, the caller also pointed out that um, you know that there's primary dealers like Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. uh, and and all the other big banks in New York. Uh, uh, they're the ones that buy the government bonds from the Treasury. Uh-huh. Uh, they buy them first, and and then resell them, and uh, and so you know that's a that, that's a great spot to be in because you're you're guaranteed a cut uh, of all that government debt as you know as you provide the selling services for the U.S. Treasury, uh, you also provide uh, additional revenue uh, for your bank. And so it's a very cozy spot. It's really unnecessary. I mean, as you said, the Treasury could just directly uh, sell yeah. the bonds um, into the economy, but uh, the institutional arrangement is uh, very favorable to a small number of these primary dealers. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so why are the central bankers of Japan and Canada and the Fed and Europe and England because of Brexit, why are they all meeting Jackson Hole and why do they want to raise inflation? Well, they've been doing this for since the 1970s, uh, and it's interesting. Uh, they get together, and it's become an increasingly important uh, symposium for the central bankers and their leading economists to try to work through some of the uh, issues that they're uh, facing and some of the issues that are looming in the future. And so very often uh, new policy uh, mechanisms uh the ideas for them are first floated uh, here in the Jackson Hole, Wyoming uh, Symposium, which is put on by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Yeah. You know, and in the 1970s, uh, late 1970s, uh, price inflation was rampant in the economy. Right. And that's when uh, central banks started inflation targeting, because inflation was so high, they would set a target down roughly 2%, and uh, and so they would have to have a restrictive monetary policy in order to get those prices to come down. Well, in today's context, it's just the opposite. Prices are coming down uh, as the world economy expands, and the central banks think they're not getting enough price inflation, uh, that we're not hitting the target, but it was meant to bring down interest rates yeah. Uh, because of price inflation, and now they're trying to push up uh, interest rates through more uh, price inflation, and they're just not getting it, and they don't know why, and they're very uh, frustrated um, as a result of their failure to. And I agree with you; it's ridiculous. Yeah, and I don't care that they don't care that they want price inflation to go. I want prices to come down. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's like what's good for us is bad for them, and what's good for them is bad for us. We got to take a break, Carl. Hang on just for a bit. I'm going to get you as soon as we come back. But we have to do this, and then I'll be back in just a little bit here at 1330 WBY Northwest Florida's Talk Radio. We all work hard for our money. Except the central bankers. They didn't flip for their money. Unbelievable what these people are doing. Yeah, so uh, the, the whole idea... Uh, why isn't this national news that these people are coming here specifically to raise our prices and raise inflation? I don't know. Let me get to Carl right away. He's been waiting long enough. Carl, go ahead. Hey, I know we're running short on time, so yes, I'll that's okay. cut it down as quick as I can. 
this topic to me is uh, key. Uh, when you're talking about inflation, taxes, debt, interest, it, those seem to see, be ingrained programs to sap the wealth out of the masses of America. And I've studied this for a while, and I came across this topic called extraction economies. And I believe we live in a designed extraction economy. Now, I don't know that it was the original intent, but that's what it's become. And so I uh, Hamilton was the father of debt. He insisted on our national government assuming debt. I'm just wondering what that reason was. If you have any uh, feelings on this, I, I, I'll let you talk instead of me talking for the rest of the show. Appreciate your question, Carl. Good question. Yeah, it's another great Thank question, and, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, this is a system of transferring wealth and obviously controlling the money supply and controlling interest rates. Uh, you're giving a subsidy to capital, you know, to banks, to Wall Street, to the capital side of the economy. You're giving, you know, a reduced price of their primary input. Now, all of this comes at the expense of labor, basically. If you group all of the rest of us together, we're essentially the labor force. We don't get access to that subsidized interest rates. Uh, we end up paying um, higher prices uh, as the money circulates through the economy. We end up paying higher prices. And, uh, you know, and so it is. It's a giant extraction uh, scheme. They even refer to it as, as a, a group of policies that don't make any sense individually, but taken all together, the monetary policy, the fiscal policy, um, is a system of financial repression. And that's basically where capital is getting these ultra-low interest rates and a labor is not getting any of the gains and we're not we can't earn interest on our savings. I think the interest rate on my savings account is like 0.01 of 1%. Uh, and so we're left behind as a result. And the grand effect is a transfer of wealth and resources from labor and the population to capital and the banks. And, uh, and so that's how the system functions uh, today and is especially noteworthy today uh, that because of the extreme monetary policy that they've been following for the last 10 years and longer, uh, it means that uh, the median family income in the United States has actually been declining, uh, whereas the typical historical trend in the United States and other market economies has always been for an increasing average family income. And uh, the last 10 to 15 years, uh, that statistic is, is noteworthy and it's declined for the first time. And basically we think at the Mises Institute, this is the major, major issue, which is why we support the reinstitution of a gold standard, because the American people became economically more equal under the gold standard. And since 1971, uh, there's been increasing inequality in the United States, as the wealthy people get wealthier and the labor f um, force is taking home a smaller and smaller paycheck when you adjust it uh, for inflation out there. In the we got to pick this.
Action Radio, dedicated to fixing everything. Thank you. 